0: eligible items only exclusions apply see ebaymotors.com hey hey it's conrad thompson and you're listening to 83 weeks with eric bischoff eric what's going on man how are you
1: man you make that so exciting you know i i know you do and look at sunday nfl playoffs games are exciting you're busting your chops you're flying all over the country you and bruce pritchard are taking over the world and yet you still show up full of energy to do this podcast i love you for that see i just told you lie. so much i love you stealing your shit already
0: well listen i appreciate that but what i'm really looking forward to is this show man it's one of our most requested shows a lot of fans think this is like a guilty pleasure and it's certainly a whole lot different than sold out 97 so before we talk about sold out 98 let's circle back and talk about last week what was the feedback you got from our sold out 97 episode you know surprisingly i got a fair amount of
1: feedback putting the event over.
0: Yeah, I did too. It was really weird. I guess a lot more people like this than myself and Dave Meltzer. So maybe we were all, you know,
1: and in fairness to both you and dangerous Dave Meltzer, um, you know, when you hear, like when you, when you have a chance to hear why we did certain things, even though it still sucked and it did, it just sucked. There's no two ways about it. You can't sugarcoat it. Even I can't sugarcoat it, crying out loud. But at least when you understand why, <laughs> it, it helps kind of mitigate the suckiness of it all. And I think, you know, people probably reacted to that just a little bit, but I was shocked. You know, a lot of people loved it, like you. You know, you put the set over right at the beginning of last week's podcast, and so did a lot of other people. A lot of people like the look. I, don't think, I didn't get anybody putting over the Miss NWO contest. No. That, was, that, that had no socially redeeming value whatsoever. It falls right into the same category as hardcore porn. But um, other than that, I was shocked to see some people kind of put it over.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it's going to be all that shocking that a lot of people really enjoyed Sold Out 98. But without further ado, man, let's get right into it. Sold out 98, we're almost upon the 20 year, 21 year anniversary, as it were, it went down on January 24th at the hair arena right there in Dayton, Ohio. And I think a lot of, uh, ECW fans like myself, we remember that building more for heat wave 98 than sold out 98. Uh, why was sold out 98, not an NWO pay-per-view? Obviously that may be an easy answer, but I think it's probably the thing. A lot of people want to know. Why didn't you try maybe a different version of what you did the year before and have another go at an NWO show? You know, I'm, and that was a. I got a number of questions
1: just like that. You know, after last week's episode, and I kind of regret that we didn't actually. Um, It's very rarely will I absolutely throw in the towel on an idea. Unless I absolutely get my ass handed to me. Um, And as bad as, you know, sold out 97 was in many respects, it still had a lot of room to, you know, some of the concepts could have worked. As I said, you know, over and over again last week, it was just there were some decent ideas that were just horribly executed. And I really wish we would have gone back and done it again. And as to the reason why we didn't, because that was your question, you know, I don't really know. Um, I I think the overall, the consensus was, look, we tried it. It it didn't work. The audience rejected rejected it. And I think in fairness to that decision-making process, when you come out of the shoot with a brand new anything, you know, song, television show, wrestling event, you name it, movie, um, and it fails as badly as sold out did, it's kind of hard to get a lot of consensus to try to, to do it again. And that was most likely the case. We just didn't want to revisit it. We tried it. It didn't work. And to try to get fans motivated about it a second time would have probably been a disaster financially.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in WCW as we head into this show. Because we've just recently covered Starcade 1997, not too terribly long ago, maybe a month and change. And it's probably our most talked about episode ever. And it's available in the archives right now at 83weeks.com if you haven't already listened to it. But that really is going to sort of be where we pick up here. Because on the heels of starcade 97, the most financially profitable WCW show ever up until that point, there is a bit of a, well, what do we do now? And the first episode of Thunder happened on January 8th, 1998. And Sting was stripped of the world title. There had been a bit of controversy about the finish of Starcade 97 and then their rematch the next night on nitro. So as we head into the sold out pay-per-view, technically WCW doesn't have a champion in hindsight. Would you have done that the same way? Were you pleased with this creative when you sort of revisited the show for the first time in 21 years?
1: Yeah, in a way I was, you know, again, step, Back in time, go back into the Bischoff time machine. Um, controversy was working for us. You know, doing things that was unexpected was working for us, both financially and cre- creative, c- creatively, I should say. Easy for me to say. Um, so it didn't bother me that we didn't have a champion because – that's why people turn tune into a pay per view to right. see who's going to become the champion, right. and that mystery and that doubt and that controversy—those were all ingredients that were kind of a part of our pretty successful formula up up till that point. So it didn't bother me. And looking back at it now, you know, if I look back at it now from from the perspective I have today, I might have done it differently. In fact, I probably would have. But putting myself back in that period of time, it didn't bother me at all.
0: Well, that's good to hear because, uh, you know, even though I hated the finish, I didn't really hate that we don't have a champion going into this pay-per-view. It doesn't have to be as important. And I know that some people watch wrestling just to see the championship match, or at least that's what they'll say in our comments. But I didn't need it for this to be a good show. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a peek behind the curtain and talk about some company news and notes as we head into sold out. Uh, Dave Meltzer would write multi-channel news did an article on Starcade breaking the all-time WCW pay-per-view record and being the most successful pay-per-view wrestling show in six years for either group. The Turner or the story had Turner sources, estimating 600 to 625,000 buys multi-channel news would claim a 1.9 bow rate and say that it almost doubled the previous best over the past few years by WCW, which is really incredible. Messer would also say it could also make the biggest money pro wrestling anywhere of the year as throwing in the live gate and merchandise. The figures would top over $7 million, which is more than even new Japan would have taken in on their January 4th, Tokyo dome show. And he would continue that WCW had a phenomenal year showing a 59.1% increase in attendance, which was even more impressive since it was coming off a year that it had a 56% increase from the year prior. So really look at that. Year over year, you're up 56% one year, and then the next year, you're up another 59.1%. Just phenomenal growth. This is starting to look like a, uh, a bit of a highlight reel for you here, is it not? Yes and no. Um,
1: <laughs> you know, I know our listeners get tired of hearing me talking about the politics that was going on backstage. This is about the time. That things really began to start and it it got worse as 98 rolled on but early 98 is when the you know it was kind of an insidious slow uh, malignant kind of effect of the AOL Time Warner merger it didn't it didn't hit us at once you know what I mean we heard about the merger we heard all the pep talk about the merger went to a Christmas party with Joe Levin and Ted Turner and it was yay rah-rah but by by this time in 98 which I'm I not the company as a whole but I in particular was really beginning to get squeezed by people that I've never been I had never been squeezed by before and pressured by people that I had never gotten pressured by before it's almost like the success that we had up and, up until this point really didn't matter it was like everybody just kind of wiped the slate clean they, they forgot how hard we worked to get to this point. Most of the people that were in management above me um, were really kind of unaware of the trajectory of WCW. They didn't really care how badly it was doing, you know, prior to this, and they didn't really care how well we were doing at this point. Um, we were we were really starting to get squeezed. So it is excited as I should have been, and we all should have been. Um, and I was on the outside because, again, what affected me didn't necessarily affect a lot of other you know management in WCW but it quit it started to quit being fun about this time believe it or not
0: let's talk a little bit about uh something Meltzer wrote here he says ironically in 1996 the year the WWF showed such a huge attendance increase the perception of the industry in many cases due to people paying so much attention to the Monday night war ratings was that the WWF was losing to WCW quote unquote for the first time ever The ironic part is that using the Monday night ratings, which WCW had won in every head to head matchup since the summer of 96 ignores the fact that WCW has traditionally always for the one year period, been ahead of the WWF when it came to cable ratings, it was just that before 1995, nobody really paid this kind of attention to ratings. I found that really fascinating because even today, and obviously the precedent was set during the Monday night war, wrestling fans are obsessed with ratings. But that didn't really become a thing until 95. And that's because of you, true or false? Uh, Well, it's because of the
1: Monday Night Wars, it's true. But could, uh, could we go back? Could you read me the part of that quote again? Because the way I heard you read it to me, it sounded like Dave said that WCW consistently outperformed WWF even prior to 97 or 98. in the ratings
0: he's saying that uh 96 you won every head-to-head matchup but before that you guys had historically been ahead in the cable ratings nobody just paid attention to that and some of that is probably because they had a giant syndicated network whereas you guys you know you're on the superstation
1: yeah i don't i'd have to go back and look at that i don't want to throw the bullshit flag however (laughs) you know the highest rated show that we had prior to nitro was WCW Saturday night and by 1993-94 we were you know we were in hovering in the 1.5-1.8 category and WWF was doing much better numbers than that in in terms well as far as I could remember they were doing much better than that on primetime on Monday night. One of the catalysts you know, for launching Nitro in prime time is because we couldn't possibly compete with the WWF number when we were on at Saturday night, 6.05 Eastern, 3.05 Pacific, and WWE was on Monday nights in prime time. So I'd I'd have to go back and look at that before I throw the bullshit flag, but I'm reaching for it.
0: He would also know how much the Gates had grown. You know, once upon a time, WCW was bringing in around 40,000 but they've increased their ticket pricing starting in June. So from June to December of 1997, they're going to average $101,736 per show. And the WWF during that time was averaging $99,192. So basically a dead heat. But this old six-figure number that everybody strived to hit, $100,000 at the gate, is now at this point just a house show. Quite a big shift in the business here as we transition in 98. Let's put a pin in that um, and talk about
1: that for a minute because that that is so true. And I, I can clearly remember – keep in mind, I'm relatively new at this, right? I mean certainly in the position I was in, I had never dreamed I, I would have been in that position, number one. And I was learning on the job. I mean, it wasn't like I came into this with a wealth of running a wrestling operation, you know, knowledge. Yeah. And, and, and as I came in, you know, again, going back 92, 93, 94, even 95, all I kept hearing about was, you know, $100,000 house shows. And to me, that was like, you know, we'll never achieve that. You know, that's like, wow, you know, the, the the brass ring that you can maybe you can hear about a brass ring, but you can never really see it even to try to grab it. That's how far it's how remote the possibility of of WCW reaching that level. I felt like it was back in 92, 93, 94, 95. So when like the first one we hit, and I think we talked about it on last week's podcast was like, holy crap, this is awesome. One hundred thousand dollars. But it did become Expected, you know, you hit the first couple, and you feel, you know, everybody's high fiving each other and cracking the champagne and smiling when they come to work Monday. But after about four or five of them, everybody's like, "Wow, you mean he only did ninety grand?" Oh God, what did we do wrong? You know, that's how much pressure we put on ourselves. And I don't know that that's necessarily bad to 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 go back and look at what you could have done differently to reach, you know, a, a a higher goal. But it really did. You get used to success really fast. I say that all the time, you know, when it comes to, to money. And I want to go back to your comment on ratings for just a second, too. But when it comes to money, you know, it's amazing how fast you get used to money, you know. It, and I've, I've, I've gone through cycles in my life, in my career, where I've, I've had absolutely nothing. Like when I first started out in in the wrestling industry, I had less than nothing. Actually, they were hauling they were hauling whatever I had, you know, out of my driveway in the back of a tow truck, and then come into money. You know, I made seven figures and and you know had a huge amount of success. And then I roll the dice and I risk and I do you know I I, I take chances and boom, you're you know, you're kind of back down to where you started and. Bam! You're back up again. So I'm used to that roller coaster. But one of the things I noticed about being on that roller coaster is that it, you get used to having money really fast. I don't get used to not having it. That I never get used to that. I, I fight that situation <laughs> with all that I have. But once you have it, I'll speak for myself. Once I have it, um, you'd be amazed how fast I get used to it. And that's kind of what was going on in in wcw you just you, you when you start getting used to your success um for me i think that if i ever had to do it all over again i would find a way to manage that process because i think managing our expectations is a really tricky art form and you know i experienced that with wcw there's there's a there was a better way to manage our expectations and in our goal setting than what we did but if i can transition back for just a moment to ratings because one of your comments were you know how fans were all of a sudden paying attention to ratings and and making a big deal out of it and i think that's true you know if you go back though and you look at dave melzer's a lot of his reporting and wade callers and you know anybody else that was doing it um everybody always you you know they always talked about ratings and ratings were yeah, nobody really understood them, and probably half the time, including the people that wrote about them, but still they were an indicator, you know, and it was something to suggest whether a show was trending up or trending down or people would often use ratings. I'm, I'm not going to name names unless I absolutely have to, but a lot of the people that were writing at that time newsletters and doing things online would always talk about the ratings within the context of their perception of a show so in other words it's it's really easy if a, if if a show comes out on a monday night and by tuesday afternoon you know you read that the ratings sucked well it's really easy to help let you know use that as to, to help shape your narrative and start picking the show apart whereas if a show got a great rating then all of a sudden when you sat down you know wednesday to write um it 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 perhaps influence the way you covered you know what was going on that week and that type of thing. but to your point and you're absolutely right, the Monday Night Wars all of a sudden the ra- there was the ratings were the only thing that people could talk about. you know they didn't have access really to a lot of the financials other than what Dave would report. And I've said this before because I know I bust Dave ball's, Dave's balls as often as I possibly can and will continue to do so until I draw my last breath. But he was accurate when it came to house show attendance, uh, revenue numbers, you know, ratings, obviously. That was a pretty easy thing to figure out. But Dave did have access to a lot of other indicators. But ratings were the one that wrestling fans seemed to talk about the most because – I, I guess it was the one thing that, uh, that everybody thought they understood, but it was misleading. Now, and I, I talk about this from time to time with certain people that are in the industry and in, in television industry in general, because I to this day, I'll be in a, a pitch with a network and, you know, people know, happen to know who I am or what I used to do, you know, they'll, they'll bring that up. It's like, wow, I can't believe it. Back in the day, you, you know, 10 ratings points on Monday night. And then I, I kind of say, do you really think that's true? Knowing how ratings work and knowing how the Nielsen company measures a viewing audience, it it really wasn't as high as people thought it was. You know, people people will read, for example, if they read, you know, Ian Meltzer's um, publication or Wade Keller's or anybody else's, you know, Monday Night Raw got a four and WCW Nitro got a 3.5. Well, if you add that up, that's 7.5, but it's really not. Because there was so much back and forth. People would literally switch back and forth, you know, 10 times within a 15-minute period. Well, if you happen to be one of those Nielsen households that was being tracked, then that Nielsen Nielsen or that people meter or that Nielsen box, whatever you want to call it, you know, is duplicating your number because you're spending, you know, 5 minutes over here and you're spending 4 minutes over there. You're spending 6 minutes over here and 3 minutes over there. So those those combined numbers that everybody got so hyped about back then, even in even in the media, it was it was kind of a false it was a false indicator because uh, there was a lot of duplication in that number.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the numbers that everybody was paying attention to. Record houses Meltzer would say that WCW business this past week doesn't have to take a backseat to the WWF by any means. The company drew near record business for its two shows this past weekend, January 31st in Boston at the fleet center and nitro on February 2nd at the Alamo dome in San Antonio. As a reminder, the WWF is about to run WrestleMania at the fleet center. And you guys go in there at the end of January, two months ahead of time and sell it out. 18,759 fans. It's an internet pay per listen event for WCW, but it's the largest gate and crowd in the history of the company on top is Hulk Hogan and Sting in a cage match. And again, two months ahead of WrestleMania, same building two nights later, you guys are at the Alamo dome where the WWF ran the 97 Royal rumble. And it's the second largest crowd and third largest gate in history 21,213 fans there paying an incredible gate, four hundred and forty six thousand bucks. It's pretty unbelievable the success that you're having, even though creatively, you know, we're looking back and trying to poke holes. It was drawing money no matter what it was. Yes, and no. And
1: I oftentimes I hesitate to get into these kind of conversations on this podcast because I know I go so far into the weeds and sometimes I don't do a great job articulating what I'm trying to say, but the success that we were having in 98, early 98 was really the result of the creative, the marketing, the promotion, the storylines, the characters, whatever you want to call it. Everything that we were doing in early 96 and mid 96 even well, I'm sorry, ninety seven, ninety six, and ninety seven, but primarily ninety seven. The the delay, if you will, in ticket sales and, and pay per view revenue and even television ratings, um, they they don't like go away overnight. You know, if you have like three weeks of back to back horseshit TV it's not like okay this month your pay-per-views are going to suck it's not really the not really the case momentum is a really funny thing this is probably the best way to talk about this i really believe you know creating momentum particularly in entertainment but in it probably in any business creating momentum is like pushing a freight train uphill it's so hard to create momentum but once you get it going once you really get that freight train up over the hill, and now you're starting down, and the and the and and the freight train, you know the 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 engine, you know, kicks in, and you're really picking up speed. It's kind of hard to slow it down too. Now, you can fall asleep at the wheel during that period of time, and I'll, you know, I'll take a certain amount of of uh, responsibility for that because you you assume. You know, I did. I'll speak for myself again. I assumed in many respects that once we got this thing going, it wasn't going to go away. Right. But the truth is, as hard as it is to create momentum, the only thing more difficult is maintaining it. That's something that I learned as a result of, you know, what I went through and and what I learned in the process.
0: And looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea, I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details.
1: oftentimes you're still living off of the success of some of the great things you did six months earlier or a year earlier, really. Because people, once people decide, you know what, I really like this. I'm going to give this a chance. Oh, wow, I'm really glad I gave it a chance. I really love it. They'll be somewhat forgiving for a period of time until they finally get to the point where they pick up their remote and go, fuck it. And once they pick up the remote and make a decision that they no longer like your product, then it's, Almost impossible to get them back. In fact, it's worse than starting from scratch because they've already made up their mind. A guy by the name of Gary Considine, and I may have mentioned Gary's name to you in the past on this podcast. I became really, really good friends with Gary. He was the executive producer over at NBC. He was the executive producer of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. But he was was a pretty high-ranking official at NBC or a high-ranking exec at NBC. And we just hit it off. You know, even when we weren't doing business together, we hit it off. We became pretty good friends. And whenever I was out to LA, I'd stop by at the studio and, 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 you know, we'd spend time together. And I remember once, right about this time, he said, Eric, you know, once the audience votes with their remote, you've lost them forever. Now, we were still doing okay. You know, in early 98, creatively, maybe not as hot as we were in 96, 97, certainly not as hot as we were in 97, or at least not firing on all the creative cylinders the way we were in 97. But the audience hadn't quite voted yet. They were still – they were reaching for that remote, but they hadn't really made the decision that they were going to, you know, change direction. So we still had them, but we really had them because of the the, the time and the creative that we put into really mid to late 97. Does that all make sense.
0: It does. And you know, as you're talking about that, I remember, and I forget where we were, but you and I were at an airport bar and you had beat me there. I had to do something at TSA or whatever. And so by the time I got down there, you made a comment about how I had been, you know, doing live shows like six weeks in a row or something like that. And you said something like, how are you going to keep doing that? Keep up that pace. And I said, well, man, that's not going to last forever. And i just remember you just looked at me very sharply and like your eyes got a little bigger and you said, God, I wish somebody would have told me that 20 years ago and, uh, to sort of talk about this now. And without saying that, that's kind of what you're saying again here.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, I, it is like a life lesson, you know, but you really do, you know, no matter, no matter how much success you have or how much you think, you know, uh, again, no matter how much success I have or how much I think I know, um, still a lot to learn. You know what I mean? You, it, And that's one lesson I wish, I wish I would have had a mentor. I wish I would have had somebody, you know, pull me aside that, that was able to influence me because I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I was pretty, I wasn't arrogant, but there was a select handful of people that I would listen to. And I'm not talking about from a wrestling, from the wrestling point of view. I'm talking about from the business of the wrestling business point of view. And that's primarily because there were so many people around me, and I'm not making excuses. I I was arrogant. That was true. But there was nobody really in my sphere of influence from an executive perspective above me that really cared, that really had anything to offer, that really um, tried to guide us and perhaps, you know, slow us down just a little bit and, and, and help us, you know, manage our momentum and remind us that, Hey dude, this shit ain't going to last forever. Right. You may, it may feel like it's going to, you may feel like you're on top of the world. You may feel like you're on that mountaintop and there's nobody that's going to be able to get next to you or or come up that mountain. But guess what? They will. (laughs) It does happen. But at that time, I just didn't believe it. I was just too overconfident.
0: Let me just put something in perspective here too. That show at the Alamo Dome, that nitro, did two hundred and forty-nine thousand dollars in merchandise. That's twelve dollars and forty-nine cents per head. And again, the gate at that show was four hundred and forty-six thousand. I want to give you a little uh, I don't know, comparison, if you will. Just bring things into perspective. WrestleMania 3 drew five hundred and forty thousand dollars. So the Pontiac Silver Dome, Hogan and Andre, five hundred and forty thousand. This random-ass Nitro at the Alamo Dome, 446000 and another two forty-nine in merch. I don't know what they sold in merch at the WrestleMania show, but I bet it wasn't forty-nine. It's unbelievable that we're having conversations about gates this big for house shows and Nitro. It really is. And, you know, when I hear those, because I don't
1: think about them, you know, and, and, until we do a show like this. And when I hear them, it's like, did, I, did we really do that? Wow, that's amazing, and it's it's even more amazing, Conrad, when you realize that what was the number in merchandising about a quarter of a million? Yeah. Okay, a quarter of a million dollars worth of merchandising, and our merchandise sucked. I mean, other than the NWO shirt, which you know I could probably print by hand, you know, if I had to, is simple black and white design, but we just didn't have a, the depth of merchandise, uh, or we weren't, bu- and we weren't buying our merchandise. The right way, because it was all still pretty new to us. We didn't have a really solid, you know, licensing and merchandising infrastructure within WCW because everybody there was learning on the job, too. Nobody there had had ever experienced the kind of success that we had. So not only was I learning on the job, so was, you know, the vast majority of, of WCW executives that were working underneath me and their staff below them. And as a result of that, our merchandise really sucked. In, in you know, fairness or or I guess honestly, we should have done probably 25 or 30 percent more than that had we had the kind of experience and the infrastructure and the foresight to take advantage of some of this. Some of this just some of it just hit us like from out of left field. We had no idea it was coming.
0: Well, here's something everybody knew was coming. Davy boy Smith finally comes to terms with WCW on a deal right around Christmas of November or Christmas of 97. So either the 24th or 25th, he's going to go ahead and put together a deal and he begins training on Christmas day. Allegedly, when his knee is examined, they find that he does have a torn ACL along with other damage. And it means he's going to need surgery and be out another six to eight months but he decided against having that ACL surgery and uh, trying to do a scope instead. And obviously there's a big back and forth because he's leaving on the heels of the Montreal screw job. Everybody's still talking about that. It's at the forefront of the wrestling conversation, especially in the dirt sheets, as you guys like to say. Talk to me a little bit about bringing in Davey Boy, the alleged buyout that Vince McMahon wanted. Uh, And and whatever you can share with us about Davey coming in here. Well, I don't, you know, I don't have any recall
1: on the buyout. Um, I do, you know, remember why I wanted to bring Davey boy in and it was not, you know, uh, know, as, as it was not as it had been reported previously. Um, I brought him in not so much because I felt like we needed him creatively or that I necessarily wanted to exploit him in any way. Because of the Montreal screw job, it was really more of a strategic move than anything else. Uh, I should say a tactical move. You know, our strategy was to you know build our business internationally because that was sure. still an area uh, when it came to revenue that was way way underserved. And again, it was the result of getting hot within. We'd only been hot for twenty four months, maybe less than that. And we hadn't really exploited that success that we were experiencing domestically on the international side of the equation. Davey was one of those guys that could help us do it. Sure. And that's what that that's why Davey was important to, for me at least, to bring in. Now, obviously there was other opportunities creatively. Davy was a great performer. Davy had a big brand name. You know, there was a lot of great things about Davey, but the number the the primary reason that I brought Davy in was to help us spearhead a stronger international effort.
0: I know you don't recall, but, but it is interesting. I just want to share this with everybody. Uh, Vince McMahon demanded a buyout of the contract in order to let him loose. He wanted $150,000 to buy out the final 32 months of Davies five-year contract, which is pretty incredible. Uh, let's keep moving here and and let's talk a little bit about uh, a meeting you had with the wrestlers on December 22nd. Uh, and this is before the Nitro show. You gather a meeting up of everybody and you have a. Here it
1: comes. A, <laughs> what stupid shit did I say?
0: Well, you, of the, you emphasize of the that you don't want any low blows, lewd gestures, or any kind of swearing on the show. And you emphasize it's important to differentiate this product from the WWFs because of what you felt would be bad publicity and a potential sponsorship problem if both companies started to get painted with that same brush. Of course, at Starcade, yep. Sting does the crotch chop. Um, and I believe in this same speech, you made a point to say how great, uh, Annette Yoder, Kevin Sullivan and Craig Leathers had done putting together this week's television show, which I found kind of interesting or odd, unique. I don't know. Worth note that you gave them a shout out here in the speech. You've shared with us a little bit about the meeting that Turner had with you behind the scenes about the content of the show is that what prompts this uh, address with the boys or is this something that you just you sort of saw the t- you read the tea leaves so to speak
1: no and this is and I'm glad you you brought that up um this is when and this came from ultimately this came down from a guy by the name of Steve Heyer. um Ad sales was firmly – this is going to light me the fuck up because even going back and thinking about some of this stuff tends to piss me off. Actually, more than hearing Dave Melzer's stuff. This is when, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, it quit being fun for me because executives above me, and Steve Heyer was one of them, and still a very successful dude, by the way, uh, in the television industry – but Steve was head of uh, you know, ad sales and had a big influence on the Turner Executive Committee and all that kind of happy horse shit. He was convinced that the new direction of WWF was going to force advertisers to abandon WWF, and they would all flock to WCW if WCW was a more family-friendly product. There, he was convinced. Now – the meeting that I had that you're referring to, I didn't believe a fucking word I was saying. I didn't, I hated it. I hated the fact that all of a sudden now I've got people who never even watched our show. Some of whom were were not even sure what night of the week Monday nitro was on. I kid you not. I asked the question once in a meeting in front of a bunch of executives who I didn't even know. (laughs) Steve Heyer being one of them. And as a trick question, I said, guys, how many of you actually know what night of the week and what time Nitro was on? About half the room couldn't raise their fucking hand. They knew we had a show called Nitro. They knew what it was, but nobody watched it. Nobody understood it. Nobody understood for a fraction of a second what it took to get to the point where we were doubling year over year our revenues and our successes and our ratings. Nobody understood it. They just—it was just there. It was just oh, okay. It's a fact of life. It's one of those Turner properties. They—they they didn't understand the trajectory, or more importantly, not that they understood the trajectory, but they understood the reason why we got to the formula. The fact that you know the WWF prior to NWO, prior to Nitro and NWO, WWF was a was a family-friendly show. Sure. It was—it was cartoonish. It was you know they targeted teens and preteens intentionally with their characters and their storylines. They had ab- abandoned, if you will, the 18 to 39 year old demo. When I got Nitro, the, the, the only choice I had was not to try to compete with a two for a teen and preteen audience. Cause the WWE already had them locked up. There was no way I was going to steal that audience. But the one thing I could do is attack the underserved audience, which was the 18 to 39 year old men. Right. You're not, you're not going to get that 18 to 39-year-old demo with a family-friendly show. You're just not, particularly back in the 90s. They, they, they weren't going to do it. The fact that we transitioned our content, our characters, our storylines, some of our antics in the ring put more of an edge on it got a little bit more gratuitous gratuitous with some of the stuff that we were doing is exactly why we were making money hand over fist in 96 and particularly in 97 and even into early 98 but the powers to be the people that actually you know could hire and fire me said no we don't want you to do that anymore we don't care what you say we don't care what you've done we understand you we understand what you say you did but here's what we want you to do because we know the advertising marketplace i was an employee you know what I mean? I wasn't a partner. I didn't own stock in the company other than my stock options, which didn't amount to shit at that time. But I had no real voice. I could just start. I could jump up and down. I could scream. I could be a dick. I could, and I I tried all that, <laughs> okay. which is why they let me go not long a year later. But um, the the point that I'm trying to make is that that subtle shift that was taking place at this time, and the influence that people that should have never had influence over our product, the influence that they had on the product was what was really beginning to undermine us And it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like somebody flipped the fucking switch and all of a sudden we had to be something else but it was it was a steady gradual like Chinese fucking water torture is what it was like. And this was this was the first real um, reveal of what was really going on behind the stage. But as the boss, as the guy that was running the division, you know, I had to get up in front of the pl- employees and tow the company line. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And as far as giving Craig and that and Kevin props, you know, Annette, you know, there's it's a name you hardly ever hear about, um, she worked for tony shivani for a long time i think she was tony's assistant i believe when i first came into wcw and then she started working for craig leathers and she worked her way up in production i mean she was a she was an assistant you know when, when i first met her and she worked her guts out i mean she was one of the hardest working people in wcw she didn't necessarily have you know as a producer because she ended up being one, she didn't, she wasn't really the, the absolute best producer we ever had, but she was absolutely the hardest working producer we ever had. And I, I wanted to give her props for that. I wanted to use her as an example and I guess a motivator for other people by acknowledging and the same with Craig Leathers, Craig Leathers, you know, there was, there was some politics of my own, not that I incited them, but I was involved in them. What I took over and I'm I'm kind of veering off the path here, just to give a little bit of historical context. When uh, 94, about ninety four, 95, ninety four, ninety five, you know, when I was made executive producer, that chapped some ass. There were a couple people that were a little disappointed, you know. I, and I don't know about Tony; you'd have to talk. Tony and I have never talked about how he felt about it, so and, so I I don't really know, and I've never listened to him talk about it on his podcast. But you know, Tony was up for that job. I think David Crockett was hoping to get that job. Um, Jim Ross was never in the running for it, you know, and there were, there were people outside of WCW. There were, they were looking at executive producers from outside of wrestling because everybody really believed when I, when I say everybody, Bill Shaw, Ted Turner, some of the other executives that, you know, they had been, they'd been try they tried wrestling people running a wrestling company and it was a fucking dismal failure. They had been run through the. The, the septic tank and they, had, they were embarrassed financially. They were embarrassed from a public relations point of view. The show wasn't growing. It was dying. It was losing money hand over fist. So they, they made the decision. They were not going to hire a wrestling person to run WCW. Now I ended up getting the job because they didn't look at me as a wrestling person. But when I took that role, number one, I chapped a lot of ass because there were other people that felt like, you know, maybe they should have got that job. Where it really got difficult for me is when I had to make some pretty hard decisions about certain roles. Um, I, Keith Mitchell, who is an unbelievable, unbelievable producer. I mean, really. I mean, he, he could run a post-production facility as well or better than anybody that I've probably come up against other than perhaps Kevin Dunn in the WWE. Keith was really, really good. And he was great with people, and he was steady as a rock, which is your as a producer and if you run a post-production facility, especially for something as volatile as wrestling when you have a lot of live television, really, really tough job. Keith was great at it. But I, I put David Crockett above him, and that created some some issues. I really gave Craig Leathers a lot of room, that kind of upset David Crockett a little bit because I I gave Craig certain responsibilities that typically should have fallen into David's David's role. But I was trying to find the best that I could out of everybody. The mistake I probably made, and it's not, it's not a slight against, you know, Craig Leathers at all because he was an amazing, he was a great director. He's very creative guy. And that's probably why he got the nod and, and Craig was steady too, man. Craig was one of those guys that if, if you had to, you know, diffuse a bomb in your basement, you'd want Craig Leathers to be the guy to help you do it. He just, nothing fucking rattled him. No matter how bad it got, it didn't rattle him. And that's one of the reasons I, I gave him the nod. But in the process of divvying up those responsibilities, eh, there was some friction because all those guys have been working together since day one. And now all of a sudden the company's growing, it's becoming successful, People are making more money. We're getting a lot of attention, and certain people are now jockeying for positions. So that was just a little, little bit of backstory of what was going on behind the scenes right about this time. And the fact that I, you know, called out Craig and Annette in this meeting dear, didn't make things any easier for some people.
0: Well, things were easy at the gate. You got to set another record on your January 5th Nitro at the Georgia Dome 23,058 paid as a total of 26,773 fans. there, an incredible gate, $510,000. So about 30 grand shy of WrestleMania three, a new merchandise record set for the building as well. 176 grand, just incredible momentum. And you're getting a lot of interest from other folks who aren't necessarily in the business. Uh, one of those is Kevin green. Meltzer would write, there's been a little talk regarding Kevin green. Lately green's contract with the 49ers bans him from doing any pro wrestling. And after the 49ers lost their NFC championship game on Sunday, green was asked about his future and said publicly he'd like to return, but was realistic enough to know at his salary and his age, they may not want him back. And he told friends, he thought this might be his last season and he may be back in wrestling before long. What were your conversations like with Kevin Green? Was he considering maybe a a full-time wrestling run? Was he that big of a fan?
1: He was that big of a fan. He loved Ric Flair. I mean, he just, he did. Kevin was what, honestly, I think, I mean, I love Dennis Rodman, you know, and I, people who don't know Dennis personally, you know, they, they judge him by, you know, what they read about him and they see of him, you know, and he's a, obviously he's a very flamboyant, eccentric kind of half nut, you know, out there in the media. But if you get to know a guy like Dennis Rodman, he really is one of the nicest people. Uh, he's, he's, he's smart as hell. You know, he may act crazy, but he's not. He's a really, really smart guy. And I liked hanging out with him. But Kevin. Kevin was the same way. You know, Kevin wasn't as obviously as flamboyant and eccentric as, as Dennis Rodman. He didn't strive for attention like Dennis did, but Kevin was a really cool dude. We used to go out and eat and and have fun together. And he was so down to earth, but he, he, he really did love wrestling. So did Steve McMichael, by the way, Steve gets blasted a lot, but Steve was a huge wrestling fan. He loved the business. So did Kevin and Kevin loved it so much. That he actually did consider, you know, making it a full-time gig. And Kevin, you know, although you know, if we go back and we look at some of the stuff that you know on the WWE Network of, of Kevin Green, he certainly wasn't, you know, a ring technician. He was no Dean Malenko or Eddie Guerrero, no doubt about that, or Shawn Michaels. But he had very little training. I mean, he, he was greener than green. He was like taking somebody out of the, you know, the the, the WWE Performance Center that's been, you know in classes for six weeks and try to put him on TV. You know, that's what we did to Kevin. I don't think we gave Kevin that much um, training and experience before we put him out there in in public. And he still did pretty decent uh, because we can't, we were able to camouflage a lot of his lack of experience, but Kevin had a major personality. I mean, he, he had that talk about it all the time. Uh, I think we were talking about it on Patreon the other night. You know, you, you put a hundred people, in my opinion, now this is just me, not statistically accurate, but this is just what my, my gut tells me, that if you put 100 people through the Performance Center, as sophisticated as the Performance Center is, and there's such great trainers, they understand the business, they've got every tool known to man, they've got NXT where they can put you know people with potential out there and give them a chance to feel what it's like to work in front of a crowd on TV, which is really an important part of the, the training equation, um, as great as the WWE Performance Center is, I bet you if you put a hundred people through there, out of a hundred people that actually make it through the Performance Center training and end up, you know, with a with a contract, out of those hundred people, maybe one of them will have that charisma, that that magical it thing that everybody talks about that just you know, Becky Lynch, perfect example. You know, how long did Becky Lynch, you know, Work at it, and work at it, and work at it, work at it. How much exposure and help and support and direction and creative and producers and agents, all of whom in WWE have a ton of experience, hundreds of years collectively of experience in the wrestling business at the highest level. But yet it wasn't until recently that she kind of found her groove. So it takes so much time. But Kevin was one of those one of the hundred people that had he had the ability to to train in the ring and really get a sense of how to perform and how to tell a story in the ring and how to pace himself and when to get his heat, when to make his comeback, and listen to the crowd—all those really subtle artistic nuances that differentiate those who do between those who are great. Kevin, Kevin was one of those hundred people that could have done it had he had had he had he made the decision number one because we would have given it to him. Um, had he made the decision to go full-time, we would have given it to him and he would have been great. He, he was that cool of a character. But the thing I like about Kevin the most, he was, he was such a down to earth guy, pro bowler, super bowl. Was he a super bowl champion? I think he was, um, he was the most down to earth guy you'd ever meet. You know, it was, was a cool guy. Miss him.
0: Well, let's talk about somebody who's, who, uh, didn't impress you. Deborah McMichael. I'm glad that you just brought up Mongo. Meltzer would write, Deborah McMichael has been dumped as they nixed the idea of her managing Ric Flair as a heel. Over the past few months, WCW has dumped Sherry, Nancy Sullivan, Jacqueline, and now Deborah McMichael. Plus, Kimberly's involvement is strictly to lead Paige's ring entrance, and she's basically just a nitro girl. So, the only woman with a role left in WCW is Elizabeth. And I don't want to necessarily dig into that, but I do want to know what happened with Deborah McMichael.
1: Yeah. I'm only hesitating because there was a period of time when I had so much fun with Deborah. Both my wife and I did. You know, Deborah would, first of all, Deborah came to every one of the nitros with, with Mongo. And typically, you know, 97, 98, whenever it was, when Mongo was there, when, you know, we'd hit the bar, you know, you'd do the show. And I, and I know everybody want, wants to make it sound like, you know, WCW and, uh, you know, all of us at Metro, it's like one big fucking frat party every Monday night. And all we did was party. It wasn't really true. And it wasn't really any different than what I experienced when I was in WWE, quite frankly. You know, when you do a show, you know, on a Monday night, you, 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 you're working all day. I'll, again, speak for myself. When I was in WWE and WCW, I, I mean, I probably drank six gallons of coffee throughout the course of a day you're just going and going and going and then boom it's time it's showtime and then your adrenaline is up you're just pumping adrenaline right and you're dealing with challenges and you're dealing with problems and you're you know you and for me I was also a performer so I'm you know getting ready to do that it's a ton of work and it's a lot of adrenaline so by the end of the night when you you know the show's over you jump in your car and you head back to the hotel there was no way I was going to sleep. Neither was anybody else. You're so jacked up, um, from, you know, the show and for the most part, 96, 97, early 98, we were on a really incredible high, man. It was, it was like snorting an eight ball, not, not literally, but figuratively. It, It was, you know, it was crazy how much fun it was. And, You'd get done, and it's like, oh, go to my room and ricochet off the walls till three o'clock in the morning, or we'd all, you know, meet at a hotel bar somewhere, in airport Marriott or wherever we were staying. And Steve was one of the guys that I always hung out with because uh, he was fun. Steve Steve was funny as hell. He had a great sense of humor. He told great stories. He was just a fun guy to hang out with, and he was really chill. You know, he was he was so laid back. And Deborah. I mean, she was like a comedian, you know, back then. But as often happens, let me say, as occasionally happens, you take somebody who's never been out in front of the camera before, who secretly really wanted to. You know, Deborah was a beauty pageant queen. She, you know, tried doing television commercials. She aspired to to be out there as a talent in one way, shape, or form for a long period of time before she got to WCW. And when she came to WCW with Steve, she was simply there to support Steve in what he was doing and, and be a part of what, what was going on. But as occasionally happens, when people like that find their way in and get a little bit of an opportunity and all of a sudden are on camera, it's amazing what that does to some people. And are <laughs> get big and all of a sudden they start feeling like a star and certain people not all of them that fall victim to this disease but some of them get really really shitty about it and Deborah did she all of a sudden the the whole Queen Deborah thing that at first was kind of an inside joke and then became oh let's kind of let's turn up the volume on that and that'll become her character you know the beauty queen um it became, you know, life imitated art. Let's put it that way. And it just got to be too much. She, she was way too much maintenance. And can you that's us, what happened to Deborah McMichael.
0: Can you give us an example of how she was too high maintenance? Was it based on call times or creative or?
1: No, it, 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 it was petty shit. You know what I mean? You know, it was catty, just kind of self-centered stuff. I don't like the way that girl looked at me, you know, backstage, you know, come oh, wow. running to me and tell me about that kind of silly shit. You know, just that kind of stuff. When you start, th- when, when you start thinking you deserve your own dressing room because you're Queen Deborah, eh, ta- 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 time to put a pin in that. So that it was, it was along those lines. And Deborah's a sweet person. She's re- I mean, she really is. She's a blast, but it, it went to her head really, really fast.
0: Let's talk about, um, the nitro that you get the year kicked off with the Georgia dome show, January 5th. Uh, I just want to run through some highlights here. Cause we've touched on a lot of this before, but DDP would beat Chris Jericho here and Jericho throws a temper tantrum after the match. And this is one week after he lost to Kurt Henning and then mentally snapped. Uh, he dumped over David Penzer, who was the ring announcer and attacked the post with a steel chair. This week, though, he shows up with a new chair and a new suit jacket and presents them to Pinzer before the match. Says it'll never happen again. Of course, he loses, and uh, he's on the floor screaming, it's a conspiracy, and turns the ring, st- ring steps over again on to Dave Pinzer. Really, really great stuff. We've covered a lot of this on our Chris Jericho episode, which is available in the archives. If you haven't, you need to go listen to that. It's a great show. Uh, on this same show we see goldberg pin stevie ray you're doing an interview saying there's no problems in the nwo Uh, booker t would pin prince ikea to retain the television title john nord the old berserker from the wwf actually shows up and makes the Barbarian submit with a modified camel clutch this comes out of nowhere you've told us before that a lot of the uh Sort of sergeants and lieutenants you had in place in WCW would reach out to talent. Did you have any interaction at all with John Nord? Him being from your old stomping grounds makes me think maybe you guys knew each other.
1: Yeah, we did. And John, John had all of the potential in the world to be a great character. I mean, he. he I I worked with him in the AWA. I knew of John before I ever got into. You know, John was one of the Kurt Hennig, Rick Rude, uh, Road Warrior, you know, gang. Uh, Wayne Bloom uh, Mike Enos that that whole crew that all kind of hung around together and I crossed paths with many of them long before I ever got into wrestling so I, I had known John for a long time I worked with John in AWA I watched John in WWF and John had all of the ability in the world to be a top guy he, he really did he had, he had all of the ingredients he just couldn't get out of his own way chemically and he was hit or miss. And I really wanted to take a shot with John because I, I saw him at his best and was hoping that maybe, you know, a great opportunity, uh, would, would convince him to kind of maintain, uh, a degree of cleanliness if you will. Uh, but it, it, it just didn't. And, and John, John had been hurt a couple times. You know, he wasn't as, He wasn't as uh, young as he had been when he was at his peak, but he was a great character. You know, he was another guy. He was not only a big guy. um, He he was a, he was a big character. He could have, could have been a huge star.
0: This is also the nitro where we see flair and Brett have their in-ring confrontation. And this was can't miss TV. If you're fans of either one of these guys, you should go out of your way to watch it. Of course, behind the scenes, especially through Brent Hart's newspaper article that he had written for years there in Canada. Uh, there was real life heat here and it came through the screen where Rick is daring Brett Hart to say that little thing you say, and he does the whole best there is, best there was, best there ever will be a great segment that really gets this kicked off. Why was Flair the right guy to sort of get Brett up and going in WCW? Because of the real heat,
1: because of the fact that, you know, for, from a, from my point of view, I looked at. Brett and Rick as very similar styles and prestige. Uh, you know, B- Brett, you know, I know I bust Brett's balls all the time and, and will continue to do so um, only because he spent the last 20 years busting mine and I finally get the fire back once in a while. But that silliness aside, Brett was really, really great in the ring. You know, he didn't have, in my opinion, he didn't have the strongest character. And personality he didn't have a lot of depth as a character he didn't have a lot of range as a as a character and a performer but when it came down to what went on inside of that ring he really was one of the best that ever was and and you know maybe not ever will be but he was certainly he'll, he'll always be in the top five I think in most people's minds certainly in mine um, kind of a dick as a human being but that's beside the point. And and his style of wrestling was very similar, I think, in some respects to Rick. To me, that was a classic matchup, and and there was real heat. So you're taking advantage of you know real life reputations of both guys, real life you know acknowledgement from the fans of the the tension between the two of them, and I knew it would be somewhat volatile when you put those two guys in the ring, and that makes good TV, especially with a guy like Rick, who's a very emotional guy. You know, a guy like Bret Hart will bring out the best in in someone like rick and vice versa so it, it was a match made in heaven so to speak for me
0: that show would finish with luger pinning randy savage with a small package that would have savage freak out and then of course you come in nash is there hogan's there there's a big pull apart uh the there are problems in the nwo uh the january 8th episode of thunder which we talked about earlier very briefly the major news here is sting is being stripped of the world title Uh, nitro on the 12th is in jacksonville florida of course it's sold out uh let's just skip around and hit some highlights one of the things i want to mention it's sort of fun last week we saw the berserker show up on wcw tv how about (laughs) marty janetti is here pinning the black cat with the rocker dropper what's the thinking to giving marty a try out here you
1: know we needed some fresh talent we needed to mix things up a little bit um i didn't i'm not the guy that hired Marty, I, you know, I would have had to sign off on it, obviously, but I, uh, I don't know what the thinking really was. I don't know if it was because somebody thought that you know Marty could, could dig back and kind of get get back to where he was. You know, Marty was a good performer. When Marty was in the AWA with Shawn Michaels, um, he was, you know, he was toe to toe with Shawn a- as a performer. There was a point in time when Marty was really great, and I think you know, for my part, probably the, one of the reasons I let that happen was because I was hopeful that maybe we'd get that guy back. Um, but, you know, there was, there was no chance of that really happening.
0: How about this? What a small world. The same show where Marty Jannetty shows up, we see the debut of a new Nitro Girl, Whisper. Of course, later, Whisper will go on to marry WWF superstar Shawn Michaels, how did Whisper get a gig here with TNT? <laughs>
1: I'm going to stir this shit up right about now. <laughs> um, I got a phone call from Harvey Schiller. I'm going to be really careful, right? Because I, I can have too much fun with this stuff. When You ask me things like this, and I reflect back, and I remember certain aspects of how things happen sometimes in the process of telling stories, maybe go a little too far, maybe get a little too colorful and infer that certain things happened that obviously didn't, or maybe didn't. But I got a phone call from Harvey Schiller. Now, Harvey hardly ever called me. I think he called me three times. This was one of them. And it's like, Eric, I've got a natural girl for you. Now, you, you don't know how fucking strange this, this is unless you know Harvey Schiller. Harvey Schiller Sh- was a colonel in the Air Force, right? He was a straight-up, legit military dude, right? No fucking sense of humor. Now, he, he could be. He could be really fun, way away from business. But when it came to business, he was like, you almost felt like you were in the Air Force, you know, when, when you worked for Harvey or when you were around him very, very buttoned up, just straight down the middle kind of dude. So I get a phone call, and he's like giddy. it's like, Eric, I found a nitro girl. I'm going, what? I didn't know we lost one, Harvey. Where'd you find her? (laughs) Probably at the airport Marriott. No, 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 I found a nitro girl. You gotta take a look at her. And I'm thinking, what's odd? I'd expect that from one of the boys, but Kind of odd coming from Harvey, but hey, you know, I work for him, so whatever. So Harvey, tell me about this girl you met. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that I jump to any conclusions at this point, but it was odd. So Harvey proceeds to tell me the story about this girl, woman, who was sitting in front of him at a Atlanta Falcons game. And it took his breath away, as he said. And he just went on and on and on. And, you know, by the time we hung up the phone, I had her phone number, which she apparently gave to Harvey. And I I can't help but laugh. And I, I really like and respect Harvey, so I don't mean to infer anything untoward took place. However, Harvey gave me her phone number and feeling pressure from above. Um, I, I met with her and she was stunning, by the way. She was a very, very... I mean, we you've seen her. I don't have to go on. She, she, I, I understood when I, once I met her why Harvey was so um, excited about her. And because Harvey was so excited about her because Harvey was my boss, guess what? She got hired. and and she deserved it. I mean she she was good. She wasn't necessarily as great a dancer as some of the other girls, and she was a lot bigger. So it's hard for a, a big girl like her. I mean, she was a big boner. She'd be beautiful, beautiful body, beautiful, but she was big. You know, I I would stand next to her and I would kind of get a little insecure. You know, I'm five ten and 190 pounds at the at that point, and I kind of felt diminutive compared to her. But beautiful face and a sweet girl, and um, so we yeah that's how we we brought her in, but you know what's interesting i we've never talked about this but i think wcw was is probably more responsible and to an extent myself more responsible for more current marriages within the wedding within the wrestling industry than anybody else in the business look at the look at the women that went on to marry a you know, booker t's wife charmell wcw shawn Michaels, What's Whispers? I can't remember her first name. Sorry. Rebecca. 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 That's right. I'm sorry. Rebecca, if you listen to this, I'm really sorry. Sean, forgive me. Sean Michaels and Rebecca, you know, Kimberly Page, Diamond Dallas Page. Look at the, the, I mean, and there's more. So, you know, I take a certain amount of pride in that. There are children that are byproducts of, of nitro. If it wouldn't have been for nitro, who knows? There's children walking around today that wouldn't be around. So I, I, you know, it's just a little sense of accomplishment.
0: The same episode. We see Saturn pin Booker T to win the TV title. There's a fun little angle, uh, Nick Lambros and the giant come out and Nick basically says he has yet to hear a good reason why Nash didn't show up for starcade. So now Nash has to put up a $1.5 million performance bond, ensuring that he'll actually show up at sold out. And if he doesn't put up the money, Nash is suspended for one year. Uh, he also says that Eric Bischoff is cut off from Ted Turner's money starting tonight, and then the giant starts to yell about getting Nash to show up, uh, chat me up here. Is this just a way to make sure the fans understand? Okay. We know we fooled you once before, but it's actually going to happen. Or was there something else at play here with this tongue in cheek performance bond?
1: No, I mean, this was, you know, the whole undercurrent, creatively speaking, of, you know, problems within the NWO. You know, we we wanted to make NWO look vulnerable because heretofore NWO was just like stomping everybody to death, right? They, they, they had been dominating w, WCW for almost two years. So it was about time that we raised the stakes, as any good storyteller would do, raised the stakes. And instead of... NWO being so dominant and, and to the point where they were just untouchable, we had to kind of shift the sands a little bit and make them vulnerable and stack the duck against them. So that's what all of this was. It was you know, cutting Eric Bischoff off from Ted Turner's money, you know and having later on, now not not right away, but having Harvest Schiller come out and you know cut my balls off on television, all of that stuff was designed to put the NWO at risk and and take some of the power away from them because like i said they had it for almost 24
0: months yeah i want to mention too the next segment we've got uh, henry holmes showing up which is hulk hogan's attorney (laughs) and um they say that yeah they're going to put up the 1.5 million for sold out but wcw has to put up the same amount and if giant touches nash before the pay-per-view nash gets the money of course giant accepts uh, you guys tease a problem between the Steiner brothers, or you have the announcers do so we're showing highlights for the past few weeks where it looks like Scott's being a little more selfish, Steve McMichael got a win over Chris Jericho with a tombstone on this show. And of course that leads to another tantrum, maybe understandably. So in this case, uh, Hoobie, uh, and Ray Mysterio have a match here and who had just won the uh, title on thunder. Ray gets to the ring and Jericho wants to know why he's here. Uh, and then what do you know, pair of back breakers, lion tamer, uh, that sets up Jericho and Ray It's sold out. We've got mean gene bringing out Jim Neidhart. Flair's going to come out and say, he's got nothing but respect for him, but that Brett is a better wrestler than he is. And, uh, that gets into a little bit of a skirmish. They're taking off their jackets and now we're really setting up, uh, sold out here. One of the, <clears throat> the, the interesting things here is. Rick had never done this, but Brett really made it popular in the last couple of years on the other channel. Rick puts the figure four around the ring post on Jim Neidhart, which I thought was kind of a fun touch, and that brings Brett out. Pretty good stuff. I think, Rick, my
1: opinion, and again, not having been exposed to WCW in, in its NWA incarnation, you know, before it became WCW. I, di- I never watched the product. I didn't have access to it. It's not that I didn't want to watch it. I just didn't have access to it living in Minnesota. <clears throat> so there's a lot of Ric Flair's history that I hadn't been exposed to, a lot of great matches that I had not seen until I met Rick and and heard about them. And even then I didn't go back and watch them. I just heard about them. But from my perspective today, even when I go back and look at, rick flair from the time that i worked with him and as a matter of fact on social media last night or yeah early i was up at four o'clock this morning working social media believe it or not um and i found somebody had sent me a clip of rick flair and i from 1993 rick and i were in the omni hotel that's where the scene was shot and we were sitting down omni hotel in atlanta georgia and rick and i were sitting down in a booth and I had forgotten all about it till I saw it this morning. We're sitting down in a booth, and Rick Flair was talking about coming back to WCW. He had just recently left um, WWF and came back to WCW, and we were talking about, you know, Rick and the 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 world title situation. Barry Windham at that point had the NWA world title because WCW was still pushing that angle, and and Rick and I were sitting there, and from that point on you know I was pretty familiar with Rick's work obviously but if for me if I go back and look at the best of Rick Flair from the period of time that I had real exposure with him I, I think this 97 98 I think it was some of his best work as a character maybe he didn't have the greatest matches that he's ever had but I think as a character Rick was so entertaining I mean, the shit he did was just, it'll, it'll stand up forever. I mean, it'll stand up to anybody. You put the top performer in WWF or WWE right now in the ring and, and the, the best scene that you've seen in WWE in the last five years or ten years, and you put that side by side and compare it to some of the best stuff that Ric Flair did in 97 and 98, and Ric Flair's going to walk away with the award every single time. Rick was just so great during that period of time. It was it was really fun to watch him.
0: The main event of that Nitro is uh, the Steiner Brothers losing their tag titles to Hall and Nash. Uh, let's fast forward to January fifteenth, the Thunder episode here. A uh, couple things I want to mention here. One of which is there's a Louis Spacoli Scott Hall match on this, and before the match, Scott asks Louis who he is and how old he is, and Spacoli says he's twenty six, but he'll be twenty seven next month. That brings out Zabisco, who gives Spicoli some advice. Uh, Eventually, Hall challenges Larry to a fight, but Spicoli jumps Larry from behind, and Larry winds up clearing the ring. I'm mentioning this because a month later, on February 15th, Louis would pass away at just 27 years old, only five days after he turned 27. What do you remember about Louis Spicoli? I don't know when we'll talk about him again.
1: Well, you know, I had such a short period of time of working with him, it's not like I had a long history. So there's not a lot that I can point out. You know, Louis was, he, he was a guy that a lot of the boys wanted him in. You know what I mean? He had a lot of support. And I wasn't aware of him, again, I know, you know, the narrative is I was trying to rape and pillage, you know, as much as I could from ECW. I'm I'm tired of denying that. I'll let people believe whatever the hell they want to believe. But Louie was not a guy that I was familiar with at all. Um, but a lot of the boys were. And he had a lot of support. There was a lot of people petitioning to bring Louis in. Unfortunately, now, after the fact, I know why. And that's, you know, Louie would make a lot of runs down to Mexico and he'd come back with a lot of goodies for the boys. That's how good, that's how Louie got himself over Perhaps with with a number of people Um, and and especially the people that were putting him over to me. So, of course, they wanted him there and he was good. He was decent. Maybe he was better than decent, depending on your your point of view, I guess, because we all like different things when it comes to the wrestling business and different styles of performances. I hate gimmick matches. Some people love them. You know, some people love street fights. I can take them or leave them. So for his style and where he came from in ECW, he had a good reputation. I had heard of him. I just didn't, I wasn't familiar with him in terms of what his work was really like, but I found out afterwards, you know, that, you know, he was, he liked so much. I'm just going to call it for what it is. And I don't mean to disrespect him or his family or friends or anything like that. But Louis was one of those guys that, you know, people talk, I'm going to go off track here for just a second. People talk about, the wrestling business, not as much anymore because I think the wellness program in WWE, no matter what you think has had a dramatic impact on the industry in a positive way. But back then that wasn't the case to the extent it is now, certainly, and certainly not in WCW. Louie loved somas. That was his gimmick of choice. And for people who don't know what a Soma is, it's, It's a muscle relaxer and guys started getting addicted to them. And I would never heard of a SOMA before because I'd never had a soft tissue injury. I didn't have a bad back. I didn't, you know, never, I never had, I never needed pain pills really in my life other than for, you know, a surgery or two. I've never even taken a pain pill. Well, that's not true. I would taken some recreationally for a period of time, but on a limited basis. Got to be honest. Um, but i didn't I didn't use it a lot, right? And Louis was one of those guys that would always have a bag of three, four, five hundred somas you know at his disposal. And of course, he was a very popular guy as a result of that. And somas were such a weird thing to me when I first started really recognizing them in some of the talent, you know, after a show, and I'm not going to name names here, it doesn't serve any purpose, but I'll be out to dinner with somebody after a show. And I mean out to dinner just like sitting down having a hamburger and, you know, a beer. You know, it's late night you know bar menu, right? And you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody and everybody's up. And like I described earlier, you know, you're all, you know, living off of adrenaline and caffeine at that point. And then, you know, you look across the room or you look around over your shoulder and come back to the conversation. And the guy you're talking to is drooling on himself face down on a plate of French fries. It's like, what the fuck? You know, 30 seconds ago, you were coherent as could be, and and now I got to get security down here to get you up off the chair. It was really weird. And I found out later it was the somas because guys would take them to come down, you know, from the show, from the adrenaline, from whatever. Um, and it would just knock them the fuck out. And then you combine that with alcohol, and it's really the prescription pain pills. This is what I'm trying to say here. Because um, I've got a lot of friends that are really involved in intervention right now and a good friend of mine by the name of Tim Ryan. I actually produced a, a special for the A&E Network uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, called Dope Man. And, and Tim has been through it all. He was a hugely – he was like the, the Wolf of Wall Street kind of a guy, hugely successful guy. Um, that got caught up with, you know, started out with Percocet and Vicodin and, you know, ended up with heroin and he ended up in, in prison and his son overdosed and died a couple of days after he got out of prison. So as a result of that re- relationship and learning a lot about addiction and opioids in particular, combined with my own experience, um, it, it really is the prescription drugs that has probably killed more wrestlers than steroids People always kind of – not so much anymore but used to really, oh, you know, all these wrestlers are taking steroids and they're dying so young. It wasn't the steroids that was killing them. It wasn't steroids that killed Ray Trailer. It wasn't steroids that killed so many people. It was fucking prescription drugs that guys were taking recreationally and they'd build up tolerances to them. And they'd take more and they'd take more and then they start chasing it with a you know a half a bottle of scotch or more. And that's what was killing people. And that, that's what, unfortunately, I remember about Louis because he was, he was that guy that was he, – he always had a handful of them or in some cases a fanny pack full. And it's, a, it's
0: really, really unfortunate.
1: And I, I don't mean to take the show into a downer, but that's, that's what was going on at that time.
0: Let's get to the um, January 19th Nitro. It's a Superdome New Orleans show. Another huge crowd, twenty thousand six hundred and forty-four, was announced on television. Uh, it's actually eighteen thousand two hundred one, paying three hundred and fifty-four thousand dollars at the gate. Another hundred and thirty-five grand in merchandise, and lots of old names here popping up on this show. Martel would get a win over Eddie Guerrero. Benoit would get a win over Marty Jannetty. The Cat beats Jerry Flynn. Scott Hall comes out and does a promo about Larry Zabisco. Of course, they're going to have a skirmish at sold out. Eventually the giant comes out and says he can't touch Kevin Nash, but he's going to choke slam Hogan tonight. So Nash comes out with a cup of coffee and Hogan with a baseball bat. Nash gets in giant's face, but Savage comes out to go after Nash. Hogan calls him off. Savage comes in and knees Hogan into Nash, sending Nash into the giant Nash would throw the coffee in the giant's face. And then Hogan would hit giant with the bat that brings sting out who would give Hogan the death drop and take back the bat. And the giant quickly gets up. And, uh, that's an interesting piece of business here. This whole coffee bit. What do you remember about this Kevin Nash giant coffee skit?
1: Well, I don't think the coffee was germane to the issue. I think, you know, the way it was set up. Uh, you know, in, in terms of the bonds that each guy had to put up. I mean, that was really the premise of that story and that scene, as you just described it. The coffee was just kind of a part of that process. Um, but as you're laying that out to me, I, I like it. It's a tight story. You know, you're setting up stakes. And, that you know, I try not to talk about this kind of stuff too much because I don't think it's all that interesting to anybody but me. But when you look at, and now, especially now, when I look at great stories and when I look at stories that sucked, um, the, the common denominator is either the presence or lack thereof, um, stakes. And, and those were great stakes, you know, Henry Holmes coming out and being that arrogant attorney and, and, you know, putting, you know, giant in a box and seemingly, you know, making it look like giant, you know, had the deck stack against him only to have Nick Lambros come out, you know, and, and, you know, counter that. And now we've built up this situation where you know we know the giant can't touch Kevin and Kevin t- can't touch giant, but here we go. They both did. And I think there was a certain amount of anticipation that went along with that story. Maybe just to me. Maybe I'm the only one that felt that. But even listening to you describe that scene the way you did and the setup that you described earlier with the the, the performance bonds or whatever, um, I, I like it. I, I think it was really cool. But in terms of the coffee, I don't think that was germane. I think that was probably a spontaneous thing. I don't think we all sat around the room and said, okay, now, remember, don't forget the coffee. That's a, that's a Kevin Nash move. That's just something Kevin would have improved.
0: Rick Ric Flair comes out to talk about his match with Bret Hart. Of course, he takes his jacket off, says he's here to wake the dead and make the little girls <laughs> talk out of their head. And he lays down on the mat. And tells Brett to Scorpion this. Of course, he's referring to Brett's sharpshooter move, but Sting's always called the same move, the Scorpion Deathlock, close enough. Hart eventually comes out, praises Rick as one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, but Brett says he's been waiting for this moment his entire life. And Flair gives Brett one more chance because he respects his family to say that Rick is the best ever. Brett smiles at him and says, you'll know who the best ever is come Sunday morning. Because this pay-per-view we're covering is once again on a saturday night your main event is hulk hogan and the giant on this nitro and giant would pin hogan with a choke slam in just six minutes and seven seconds after a distraction for macho man randy savage so uh, things are not smooth sailing in the nwo and that's certainly the story they're trying to tell and this show in particular is the first time davy boy shows up backstage uh how was he greeted you know his, uh, a lot of these guys are his old friends what do you remember about davy showing up at nitro for the first time
1: and there was no one who wasn't excited to see davy show up you know and keep in mind davy had been in wcw previously so it wasn't like the first time he'd been there um but he had a lot of friends a lot of support and and deservedly so you know davy was a great worker davy was a great character davy had earned his stripes um is one of the top performers in the world at that point. So there was no one who wasn't excited about Davey boy showing up.
0: Both he and Jim Neidhart were at the show dressed in their gear, ready to go. And Meltzer would say a decision was made not to use them on television, even though Flair worked as a heel in the angle. They felt like maybe you should just wait and save that for later. And I don't think that skit absolutely had to have them, but I understand why they would be there. Something that caught me off guard in The Observer. Meltzer would write Kurt Henning and Rick Root have disappeared. Kurt suffered an injury a few weeks back that may require surgery. Don't know what the status of Root is, nor what happened regarding his legal situation after the Buffalo incident. Originally, Kurt was going to interfere in the Flair Heart pay per view match to set up a triangle feud, but I'm guessing that may be changed. What was going on here with Kurt and Rick? Do you recall?
1: Well, Kurt was injured and Rick had, look, and I'm could you uh, smart me up on what happened in Buffalo? You referred to the Buffalo incident. And I just don't know what that is. I
0: don't know off the top of my head either. I'll have to check. Okay. We'll talk All about right. it on Patreon later this week. All right. We'll dig that up. Um, look, when
1: when Rick Rude came back to WCW, have we ever talked about Rick Rude and his Lloyds of London policy and how that kept him out of the ring? Yes. We have. Okay. So I, I, I only ask because I don't want to. go into something we've already covered. That was a big issue for Rick. It it was one of the reasons why to this day, I don't go to wrestling funerals anymore. Uh, Because Rick, Rick was angry. He was angry at himself. I think he was, he was angry because of the Lloyd's of London issue that we've covered in the past. He just wasn't a happy guy. And he was, you know, his life wasn't under control. Let's put it that way. I still, you know, still respect Rick as a friend, um, but he was having issues and that was what was going on with Rick recruit at the time. Kurt was just hurt.
0: Okay. All right, man. Let's talk about the go home edition of thunder right before sold out. Believe it or not, this was in my hometown of Huntsville, Alabama, and, uh, I was here, so this was a fun show. Uh, eventually you and Hulk come out. Hulk says it's going to be a big party when he gets the title back on Saturday because he never lost it in the first place. Uh, the giant and Scott Hall have a match here. Of course, Savage interferes again. Uh, Benoit would beat Jericho. Eddie Guerrero is having a match with uh, Ray Mysterio. Lots of fun stuff on this show uh, that I just recently watched for the first time in a long time. Uh, in your effort to uh, sort of promote the sold out pay-per-view, you guys have the Nitro girls show up on Regis and Kathy Lee, which I thought was kind of fun. Of course, Regis, who is a big WWF fan. Maybe not so much of a WCW fan. He refers to Kimberly's husband as Diamond Dan, which is kind of fun. (laughs) What do you remember about the Nitro Girls winding up on Regis and Kathy Lee?
1: Uh, You know, uh, I think it was Alan Sharp, who was head of PR at the time, was able to set that up. And the Nitro Girls were getting hot. I mean, I think that's really an underrated component to some of the success that we had with Nitro. You know, obviously they they weren't really created to become a part of any kind of angles. And in fact, that's kind of when things started going downhill and the wheels started falling off when they started getting overly involved in storylines and scenes and things like that. But in the very beginning, you know, they were our Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and they did a great job. You know, and I know certain people that are hardcore, traditional, you know, whatever you want to call them, the 10 percenters, if you will, um, hated them. But I loved them, you know. I, I, uh, as a, as a television device, to be clinical about it, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we had was commercial breaks. When you're producing a live television show, especially a wrestling television show, you know, I, 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 I feel for WWE right now, and it's worse now than it's ever been because commercial breaks, you know, commercial segments are much longer now than they were back in the late '90s. Uh, it's harder and harder for television networks or cable outlets to make money anymore because of what's going on in streaming. So they keep expanding the commercial breaks so they can cram more and more commercials in because they're making less and less money. And here's what happens when you're producing a live wrestling show. You know, you get people in the audience or you get people in the arena. They're all excited. The pyro goes off, or at least it used to the pyro goes off. Everybody stands, they scream. They're all excited. They've been waiting all day to see this, maybe weeks to see this and their emotions go way up, and then they have a match, and then you go to a commercial break for six minutes, and they're all sitting around looking at each other. And when you bring the audience up and down like that, they get fatigued. And it gets to the point where about halfway through, you know, your first half hour, 45 minutes, by the time you've gone through that cycle a couple times, you've really lost control of the audience's emotion. It's hard to get them back after a commercial break. So what we would do and this is the, ri- the reason why the Nitro Girls were formed in the first place, was to try to overcome th- the fact that during our commercial breaks on Nitro, I didn't want the audience to grab the remote and go over to WWF. I wanted to hold them. And I also wanted the people in the arena to not fall asleep during a commercial break. So the Nitro Girls, the way we originally, uh, the architecture for them originally at least, was to come out about 10 or 15 or 20 seconds before a commercial break. After a match, girls would run out. They'd start their gimmick. And their gimmick, listen to me talk. They'd start their dance. You know, the the people in, let's, let's talk about the television audience. The television audience would see this, and it wasn't hard to look at, right? They were used to seeing cheerleaders and dancers at, you know NBA and NFL and that type of thing. So it was it was consistent with sports entertainment if you will. But the television audience would see these good-looking girls come out and just start their routine, go to a commercial break and the hope was at least that the girls coming out would hold that audience because the 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 television audience also knew that we would use them as bumpers out meaning We'd see the whole entire commercial break and then we'd see the last 15 or 20 seconds of the Nitro Girls again. So we kind of bumpered them on both sides of a commercial break. So it helped to a certain degree with the with television audience in, in terms of retaining it for, for, for us. But what it really did was it kept the energy alive in the arena and that was – probably 75% of what they were there for, is to keep that energy alive in the arena so we weren't going through this cycle of, you know, extreme excitement and cheering and people throwing stuff in the ring and the babyface winning. "Ah, Oh, it's pandemonium. And then it's a snore fest for six minutes in the building. So we, we put a lot behind them. They got a lot of exposure. We put a lot of PR behind them. Like I said, Alan Sharp did a good job with them. And we started getting some of those media opportunities as a result of it
0: let's uh let's talk about the show but before we do i want to touch on two outside projects that happened in this era dusty Rhodes gets a gig on the nashville network for motor madness and the giant lands a role in adam sandler's movie the water boy how did these come together
1: i mean dusty got that deal on his own that that was a dusty Rhodes thing all, all unto himself we didn't have anything to do with that Um, As far as the Giant goes, Giant, and I, God, I wish I could remember the name of his name. Giant, when he first came to WCW, had a manager. I think his first name was Mike. And he wasn't, he had never really managed anybody else. It wasn't like, you know, a Barry Bloom, for example. Barry had, you know, a long history of managing everybody in the wrestling business from Jesse, the body Ventura, all the way up to today, where he's managing Chris Jericho, right, as a business manager. And, This guy came in, you know, I think he was a friend of Giants when he first came in and, you know, Paul was a, I've said this before uh, and I don't mean this as a shot, but he was an insecure young man. He may have been seven foot tall and 500 pounds, but he was still deep down inside when he looked at himself in the mirror, he was just a big kid. He didn't have a lot of. Confidence at the time. So I think he wanted that manager there as kind of a familiar face and someone he could talk to. And it, it, for whatever reason, he trusted this guy. He later found out that misplaced judgment but, or trust. But nonetheless, this cat you know, hooked him up with an attorney in L.A., who fancied himself to be kind of a Henry Holmes. And and I don't mean to minimize him. He, he was successful. He was a real scumbag in my opinion, but he was successful for certain guys. And he latched, you know, the manager reached out to what would end up being one of Paul's early attorneys. And this attorney had some contacts in LA and boom, he got the movie opportunity.
0: One of the other things that uh, made the news right before uh, the show is an internet chat where Conan praises the direction of the WWF and said that WCW wasn't interested in pushing the Mexican talent. And that when their contracts run out, he expects that they'll all try and go to the WWF Conan, of course, at different times had to be a bit of a thorn in your side. When you hear that, uh, is this something you get hot about or fuck? Yeah, I got hot about it. I
1: mean, Conan and I would, you know, we'd go from being tight and and on the same page and just really as tight as you could be, creatively speaking. We, we never hung out together. It wasn't our deal. But, I mean, tight in terms of business and creative and vision and, you know, what we saw w- with the Luchadors and, you know, the Cruiserweight division, all that stuff. And, and, you know, Conan could at one moment be one of your biggest assets and, you Three, three days later, you know, you'd want to take a baseball bat to him, um, because he would do stupid shit like this, and it was Conan's way. You know, Con- Conan was. You know, look, I love Conan. We're tight now. You know, I do his podcast from time to time. We see each other. We hang. You know, I probably go smoke a bowl with him if I run into him somewhere down the road. No problem with Conan at all. They have a ton. Not only not no problem with him. I have a ton of respect for Conan in a lot of ways. Conan, uh, much like Sean Waltman. Um, was probably one of the reasons that that nwl was able to maintain its its edge and its cool factor for as long as it did even though it, it did play itself out obviously but it would have played itself out a lot sooner had conan not been part of that group he brought some real organic street edge to it that Quite frankly, Kevin and Scott, as cool as they were and as edgy as they were, they didn't. So there was a lot of things I loved about Conan as a as a character. But as a person and doing business with, honest to God, there were times I just, you know, I couldn't kick his ass. That wouldn't have worked out so well for me, but I <laughs> wanted to. <laughs> I I really did want to sometimes.
0: Sold out 98. Here we are selling out in Dayton at the Hera Arena, 5,486 fans which is 5,087 of them paying 133,750 bucks at the gate, nearly 65 grand in merchandise, $12 and 68 cents per head, which I believe Meltzer would say is the largest merch figure he'd ever heard of in the United States. As far as per head Uh, Meltzer says for all real purposes, the building was sold out within four hours of tickets being put on sale more than one month earlier. After the arena set up, there were about 700 additional tickets released the day of the show. And for all real purposes, this is still a four-hour sellout in his mind, which is really incredible. Uh, Let's talk about the first match here because we just talked about the Mexican talent. And man, they're going to put on one hell of a match here. Meltzer would give it four stars. If you've slept on this match, I want to recommend you go watch it. Juventud Guerrero is going to tag with Chavo Guerrero Jr., Liz Mark Jr. and Super Supercalo, and they're going to get a win over La Parka, Silver King, Psychosis, and El Dandy in nine minutes and 30 seconds. And Meltzer would say, this is about as good as you can do with an eight-man tag, given no storyline and the time constraints. Really a fun match here. And it did a great job showcasing, you know, their skills and ability. And a, a Lucha match is always a hot way to, to open a show, is it not?
1: It always it, it always was and probably always will be. Maybe more now, you know, it, and I'm not trying to, you know, take credit for anything here because other people had used, you know, Lucha's before me. We were the first one to give them a major national or actually international television platform And and I will, you know, we will, Nitro should take a certain amount of credit for really being the first wrestling company to really showcase that lucha talent to the domestic us audience at the level that we did and they became a thing back then i mean now you look at you know you got lucha underground now and you know lucha is such a it's become a part of pop pop culture you know there are restaurants that i go into in la when i'm in town that have, you know, lucha doors all over, you know, painted all over the walls and the, the restaurants are themed after, you know, lucha. There was one in Arizona that I went to about a year ago and there's a big just mural of Rey Mysterio Jr. on the wall, you know, and I think certainly some of that has to do with the fact that, you know, Mexican families and business owners that own these restaurants, you know, experience lucha in Mexico. But a but there's a lot of it now in pop culture. You know, Lucha Vavoom. You know, if if you're not familiar with Lucha Vavoom, you know, I went to a couple of their shows about 10 years ago when I was trying to get them to do a reality show. Um, there are two women that, that ran it at the time, and I can't remember their names, but I spent a lot of time pitching these ladies, trying to get them to do a, a behind-the-scenes kind of reality show of that whole Lucha Vavoom experience in Los Angeles. And, you know, I think a Good part of that comes from the fact that we helped, at least, expose the the, the lucha culture. And from a wrestling perspective, clearly, um, we utilized it to the best of our abilities at that time to really energize the show. You know, my my thinking, my logic, good or bad at the time, that I launched the the cruiserweight division. And unfortunately, right now, the, the only person left that could. You know, attest to this is Dean Malenko um, because it was Dean and and Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit that sat in my office and I described to them what I wanted to see out of the cruiserweight division. And they were the ones who encouraged me, especially Eddie, to really take a good hard look at what was going on down in Mexico. And once I saw it and once we experienced it on Nitro – As you point out, you know, for a period of time, every pay-per-view or the majority of them, you know, I love starting them out with a Lucha match. I depended on the Luchas during that 9 o'clock transition hour when we could possibly lose a good chunk of our audience to help me maintain that audience on Nitro. So they were were invaluable um, to the overall success. And one of the reasons why we were in the financial position we were in in 98 was in no small part due to – the excitement, the enthusiasm, the freshness of, of the luchadors.
0: Uh, Chris Benoit is in a match here against Raven. They're going to go 10 minutes and 36 seconds. Chris gets the win and it gets three and a quarter stars. Meltzer would say very good match, probably even better than would have been expected. Uh, This is two really good matches in a row to start the show. A lot different than last week's sold out 97 show we did yeah well maybe because it wasn't that
1: hard to look outstanding after last week's show but yeah i was we did we added a little nitroglycerin to the formula and it did start out a lot hotter no doubt about it
0: we keep the hits rolling man next up we've got chris jericho beating ray mysterio jr to win the cruiserweight title in eight minutes and 22 seconds The storyline here, though, happens after the match where Jericho destroys Mysterio's knee, taking his brace off and hitting him with the brace and then putting it next to the ring step, smashing the knee with a heavy TV box. Mysterio is eventually carried out of the ring. And the story here is he's torn his ACL and his meniscus on January 6th in Rome, Georgia, aggravated it six days later in Jacksonville. Still had a match where he won the title on the 15th in Lakeland from Hooventude and this means now though, he's got to have surgery and they're going to do that surgery on January 28th in Atlanta. So just four days after this, he's going to have surgery and obviously be out for a while, which really helps Jericho here because it gives, uh, Jericho a, a ready-made feud when he comes back. But just a couple of weeks after throwing the tantrum, He's got cruiserweight gold here in a three and one quarter match. Really, really fun match. If you're a fan of these guys,
1: they complimented each other so much. You know, we talked about this. I think it was last week. Uh, when we watched the match with Chris Jericho and, um, Oh, who was it? Who was it? It was from Japan. Um, God, I can't believe I don't remember. Chono. And, There was no chemistry there. If you remember when we covered that match, it was just two super talented guys. But just because you have two super talented guys doesn't mean you're going to get a fantastic match. Sometimes the chemistry just isn't there. Not this situation here. You know, Ray and and Chris had such great chemistry. And Ray was Ray. You know, even with a bad knee, Ray was Ray. Um, so yeah, it was an exciting match and, you know, because of the talent, because of the chemistry, it was awesome.
0: Next up, we've got uh, an interview with Gene Okerlund where he's interviewing JJ Dillon to rectify the WCW title situation where there's not a champion, but instead he has Roddy Piper come out and Piper announces that the title is going to be decided in a rematch at the Cow Palace at Super Brawl, Hogan, Sting, February 22nd. And that announcement is not made on Nitro or Thunder, but on pay-per-view. Why is a pay-per-view the right place to announce that?
1: Oh, I don't know. Probably just trying something different. You know, trying to be spontaneous, trying to break the formula. You know, I was a big fan of that, everything I did, everything, every, the reason Nitro was in the position that it was in and WCW was in the position it was in is because I looked at how WWF, WWF was operating and I tried to be as different from the WWF as I could be. Now, granted, we we're in the same business, the same form of entertainment, but, you know, from the simple thing, you know, the very first thing was their, their tape, I'm live. They're, they're. They're teen and preteen. I'm going after 18 to 49, you know, giving away finishes. Never been done before. Oh, got to do that. Um, Shoot backstage. See people throwing each other into trucks, you know, have an angle go down inside of a production truck. That's never been done before. Let's do that. So there was a whole lot of, you know, sold out 97. That's never been done before. Let's do that. Sometimes that shit worked and sometimes it didn't. But I, I think it probably fell into the category of let's just make it feel spontaneous. When Sometimes when people – not when people. Sometimes when scenes or, or a moment in a scene or, or an angle is out of the ordinary, it's more believable. Right. And – so much of what I did fell into that category and you know, some of it sucked. <clears throat> some of it didn't, some of it was fucking phenomenal. Um, it was hit or miss, you know, but that's, that's why.
0: Speaking of hit or miss Booker T retains the TV title, uh, in a 10 minute, 52nd match with Rick Martell. Uh, Meltzer would say crowd was totally dead for these two. There was nothing wrong with their actual work. Only that Martell isn't flashy by today's standards And has had no interview time to get over, although interviews were never his strong suit to begin with. Not the best match in the world. Only gets one star, two very talented guys, but for whatever reason, it didn't click with the crowd and that translated to the screen.
1: Well, Dave was, Dave was right on the money as much as I want to kick myself in my own balls for having to say it. Um, but he was right. You know, you've got two talented guys out there, but if they don't, number one, if they don't have a story, who cares? You know, and, and I don't know that that's as true today, maybe, as, as it was certainly back then, you know, but at the same time today, you've got a, a much higher level of athleticism and spectacle so that you don't necessarily need to have as much story, I guess, maybe or maybe you do. I don't know. I'm not in the business anymore. But back then, at least, if there was no story, if there if the characters weren't at least moderately well-defined and you had a a reason to want to see the good guy win and a reason to want to see the bad guy get his ass kicked, if you didn't have any of that and you didn't have the interviews to use as a device within the story to help you get there, yeah, it's kind of not surprising that the audience would be yawning no matter what the match looked like because there's no reason to cheer.
0: Well, here's something to cheer about. Larry Zabisco gets a win over Scott Hall by DQ. Now, here's maybe what you've been waiting for on this show. Uh-oh. If you want, if you wanted me to yell at Eric, here it comes. Scott Hall comes out with Louis Piccoli as it's flunky. So Zabisco comes out and then introduces Dusty Rhodes. Melter is very critical of Dusty's appearance, but he also says that this issue has drawn so much heat for so many months. But, quote, it was almost eerie, the lack of heat, once they actually got in the ring. And Meltzer says there was nothing wrong with the match. Zabisco's actual work was solid, and he looked to be in better shape than even when he was a full-time wrestler. But the fans were still into Scott Hall. He's getting a pretty solid face reaction. And eventually, there's a moment where Spicoli interferes for the DQ. So that allows Dusty to run in and give Louie the big elbow, who sells it well. And then Rhodes goes to Elbow Scott Hall who moves and Dusty accidentally clobbers Zabisco. And at this point, Dusty Tease is going after Scott Hall, but then takes his shirt off to reveal another shirt below. It's an NWO shirt, and unbelievably, Dusty Rhodes has turned heel, which I don't think anybody needed or expected. Man, who booked this shit? Dusty Rhodes a heel? Isn't he hard to boo here? Yeah, that was,
1: I'm trying, I'm thinking, I'm trying to defend this really hard. It's, it's freaking bad. I wish I wouldn't have done it. Well, listen, I know, I'll, I'll let you get it. <laughs> I know, that, I, I know you wanted you. to yell at me. I know you wanted to beat my ass. Cause I know that, you know, it, you, you cannot go through a podcast without at least kicking my balls once. But man. when you talk about that and you know reflecting back on it and looking at it (sighs) fuck have at it i deserve it (laughs)
0: No, listen since you're gonna lay down and play dead for me i won't do it but it is it is in the book of bad ideas if you haven't seen this go watch it just so you can see how awkward it is it's not the guy's fault but the creative here really not the best speaking of not the best the steiners are going to team up with ray trailer to ray trailer to be conan Marcus Bagwell and Scott Norton, uh, Meltzer absolutely hated this, gave it a dud rating. And he said things like Bagwell was so busy being animated that he didn't wrestle and Rick Steiner, Norton and trailer were basically slugs out there. Not a good match. Uh, probably too many big bodies in there. Nobody to really throw around. Uh, so you've got guys who maybe need a good dance partner to have a good match. And that was not here. Dud rating, probably the worst match on the pay-per-view. What say you? Fuck, we're
1: gonna to have to rename this podcast. You know, the Dave Meltzer. You know, honor, You know, honoring Dave Meltzer here. He's right. I mean, that was bad booking. You know, that was just you, you can't, you can't put guys that are that big, especially when you've got cruiser, when you got guys like Jericho and Rey Mysterio and Chris Benoit on the card. You know, once the audience sees that really you know, dynamic, high-flying, crisp, believable kind of action. And then you put a group of guys together that are all really big guys that can really only do big stuff. And the big stuff that big guys did back then was just not that exciting. And there wasn't a lot of story behind this, by the way. I mean, there was enough. There was a little bit, maybe not enough. There was a little bit of story behind it. It wasn't like we just threw them out there for the fun of it or because we couldn't think of anything else to do or because they happened to show up and didn't have anything to do that night. I mean, there was thought behind it and story behind it and some buildup behind it, but you God, just hearing you talk about it kind of makes me cringe. It's just bad. You know, it's just, there's a lot more to booking than, than, you know, Kevin Sullivan sometimes realized because Kevin would have been booking at this point. I would have been booking at this point. It wasn't just Kevin Sullivan. Um, Terry Taylor was there. There were a lot of people there that were in on some of this, um, that didn't raise their hand and go, dude, that's going to stink the house up. Um, and, and myself included, by the way, at the, at the top of that list, because I was running the company, but looking back at it now, that was some horse shit booking. No doubt about it.
0: Well, here's some more horseshit. Kevin Nash pins the giant in 10 minutes and 47 seconds. You and Hogan come out with Nash because Hogan needs that pay-per-view payday, brother. Uh, and Nash actually tries a pescado. so like the over-the-top rope dive that we see a lot of uh, lightweight guys do. Well, Kevin Nash's Big Tail tried that, but his legs catch the top rope, and he could have been hurt with a very bad landing, but the Giant catches him and actually muscles him back up to slam him into the post. But that's not the bots that everybody talks about. Kevin Nash successfully jackknife powerbombed the Giant at Super Brawl the prior year. In those 11 months, Meltzer would freestyle that the giant has probably gained close to 50 pounds and Nash couldn't handle the weight and he actually dropped him dangerously on his neck and upper shoulders and got the pin. So they're doing an angle here where giant is injured, but he was walking around backstage. Okay. And some people suggest maybe he had a mild concussion, but this is before anybody really knew all that we know now. But a really, really scary moment. There is a throwaway moment where Hogan gives Nash a pitcher of coffee to throw in giant's face, but the dropped power bomb, one of the more scary moments, especially when you're talking about guys this big and that much weight coming down on someone's head and neck. First of all, the giant,
1: the giant gaining 50 pounds would be like me gaining a pound and a half. You wouldn't even see 50 pounds on the giant. You wouldn't even know it. I'm not even sure his pants got any tighter with 50 pounds. He got really big. I don't know. I never weighed him. Wasn't part of the process. But if he wasn't a buck, a buck and a quarter heavier at some point around this time, I'd be shocked. Really bad judgment on Kevin's part, you know, and Paul's. They both should have known better. I mean – it's easy to say that now, 2020 hindsight, but I think, in fairness, and in just you know, you gotta call it like it is. Kevin's a good buddy of mine, but why do that? You know, what what are you proving here? The the, the, the risk is so high when you try to, you know, as strong as Kevin is a horse. Kevin Kevin's a big dude, but he's a lot stronger than he looks, even as as big as he is. And he's got a lot of leverage. You know, his arms and legs are long. There's a lot. Of, I mean, he's a powerful, powerful man. He was even more powerful then. But still, you know, you're sweaty. You're you're probably half-gassed. There's shit in the ring. I mean, you know, the ring can be greasy from sweat or blood or somebody throwing a Coke in a match before, whatever. The, the risk is so high for a move like that. Not only... C- in, in terms of getting somebody hurt, but in terms of just botching it so it doesn't look that great. And, again, it's 2020 hindsight. Everybody can be a genius after the fact, but I think it's safe to say that that's one those two guys should have. They should have known better and so should have their agents. Not that, you know, in fairness to the agents at that point, given the the, the situation at the time, I'm not sure an agent would have been able to talk either one of them out of it if they were bent on doing it. Um, but those two guys should have known better. Really?
0: I want to mention that Kevin Nash says that the uh, giant refused to go to the hospital, but did throw up backstage, which does make you think he probably had a concussion. Now right, let's get to our main event, man. This is the match that everybody's been wanting to see for a long time. Bret Hart and Ric Flair. They go 18 minutes and six seconds. Bret, of course, gets the victory. Meltzer would say this was the first old style Flair match in a few years. Some were comparing it to steamboat matches of years ago but that would be ridiculous as even if Hart is as good as steamboat was, it doesn't matter because it's not true. This is not the same flair to Flair's credit for his age, just weeks shy of his 49th birthday. This was nothing short of tremendous in the ring. And both were motivated with something to prove and pretty well proved it. Uh, he really liked the match. He gave it three and three quarter stars. He says the selling was great by both. And it came off more dramatic and believable than most. And, uh, well, you can imagine what's coming here. The finish is a superplex off the top rope, then into the sharpshooter quick submission. Uh, but he did say the match was missing a post-match handshake, which I think maybe would have made sense. But if you guys were going to build a trilogy of matches, maybe you don't do it then. Uh, what do you think? You haven't seen this, sh- this actual match in 21 years until this week. What'd you think when you watched it back? Lived up
1: to expectations. You know, I, I'm. It's interesting now, you know, when we hear, in, in this case, Dave and others, you know, Wade Keller did the same thing so did everybody else who was writing or talking, you know, Mike Mooney, well, no, Mike was a Ric Flair fan, but a lot of, you know, a lot of writers were, you know, referencing Rick's age and how he missed his, you know, he wasn't the same old Ric Flair that he used to be, but he was still great. Everybody loved Ric Flair. 49 years old. Chris Jericho, the darling. Of, of the internet, you know, and, and deservedly so, by the way, I'm a huge Chris Jericho fan. How old is he? 48? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's just so, f- and I'm not, I'm not taking shots at Dave for saying it because it, it was true. It, it, it was a fact, you know, Rick was 49 and in a business where, you know, it's a, generally speaking, it's a younger man's business, but Rick Flair in this match, I don't know, man. I, like I said, I didn't see the Ricky Steamboat. You know Ric Flair stuff, so I'm not qualified to Wait, pass judgment. You've I'm, never I'm, seen it ever? No, I mean I, I, I saw it, okay. I saw it. I was aware of it. Can't can't picture it in my head. Can't try to compare it to these two matches right now. But there was nothing wrong. I don't I don't think this match was lacking. I think this this is me. Okay, this is this is where I get fucked up because when people look at them and I'm going to use Dave again. Dave looks at a match. And he looks at it from a technical point of view in some respects. He doesn't look at the overall match. He doesn't look at the overall story. He doesn't look at the overall reaction to what we did. He tends to look at, and there's nothing wrong with it if that's what you like, right? Maybe from a crispness uh, point of view, maybe it wasn't as good as it would have been five years earlier or ten years earlier. No doubt. None of us— are as good at anything when it comes to physical things as we were 10 years ago. Age has that effect on people, but this match was still so fucking good. And honestly, I think the story was good. And yeah, you know what Dave's referring to, you know, the only thing that was lacking was a handshake at the end. That's a Japanese finish. That's a, that's a typical Japanese thing to do. And we all know that, you know, Dave's. They okay. really likes that Japanese presentation. And I get it. So do I, by the way. That's why I spend so much time over there studying their psychology and the way they do things. But it doesn't necessarily translate here. It, it could have worked. I'm not saying it, it was impossible for it to work. But given what we do here is more of a serialized form of entertainment, meaning it's an ongoing story from week to week to week to week, that, that also would have killed the heat between those two guys. And we weren't right. interested in killing the heat between them.
0: Well, the heat would continue in the book. Let me tell you that Brett would write. I was worried how Flair would work with me with my still injured hand. I needed to keep a close eye on him. Flair appeared to be trying to get along in this den of wolves and multiple wolf packs, but as hard as he tried, nobody liked him except his old cronies like Kevin Sullivan, Arne Anderson, JJ Dillon, and Mongo McMichael. Hogan took every opportunity to try to stir me up about Flair, but I said nothing. I let Rick do the match his way, even letting him chop me to his heart's content as he tried to show me how good he really was. I offered no resistance in what was, as usual with flair, 20 minutes of nonstop non-psychology.
1: Fuck him. He is such a bitter. Now, let me take that. I'll take that back. Fuck him. He was such a bitter prick when he wrote that book. That is just such. I got no dog in this hunt. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't in that match. I didn't lay the match out. you know. But this is a thing that really – and it, he, look, he's not busting my balls in, in, in that part of his book. He's burying Ric Flair. Yeah. There is nobody in this business that has ever worked with Ric Flair that wouldn't tell you that Rick made them look better than they really are. From Hulk Hogan on down, talk to Stone Cold Steve Austin about that. Talk to people who really fucking have a clue and aren't putting themselves over in the book because they think they're a goddamn Canadian hero and their shit doesn't stink. And if it wasn't for them, you know, wrestling would never be what it could have been. You know, it's just it, it's absurd to me. And when I hear this stuff, it really gets me hot. It gets me just as hot that he's saying that kind of shit about Ric Flair as, if, as if it would if he was saying about me. It's wrong. It's, fuck. Have you ever heard anybody, anybody, and if you have, honestly, Conrad, put me in my place. But have you ever heard anybody talk about Ric Flair like that?
0: Just, just Ole Anderson, you know. That's okay,
1: they're they're kind of out of the same cloth. Ole Anderson and Bret Hart, two of the most bitter fucking miserable human beings on the face of the earth and and hopefully brett's like somebody gave him you know a, a, a fucking limitless pill of some kind you know where he all of a sudden his you know his brain started functioning again and he looked at the world from a different perspective but that is such a bitter miserable unfair untrue thing to say Oli was jealous two, and two, pro- pro- probably so probably so was brett
0: two things i want to mention here uh, one, uh, they're they're good friends now. Brett and Rick get along now. This They've buried the hatchet. Let bygones be bygones, whatever. Uh, two, and I know you don't like just the mere mentioning of the name. Bruce Mitchell once made a really good point where he said, you know, Brett suffered from a stroke, and sometimes your thinking is not exactly the way it once was, and you can get confused, and you can have some pretty situational mood swings. And so maybe he's not being his true honest normal self here if this was written post-stroke.
1: I you know, I don't know maybe, you know, um maybe Bruce Mitchell was right. And maybe there was a a, a sound medical, you know, clinical reason for him to be as bitter and miserable and self-serving as he was in that book. But it's kind of been Brett pretty much from what I've been told. You know, clearly I didn't work with him in WWF. But in all of the conversations that I've ever had with people who did work with him in the WWF, um, he was the same Bret Hart back then as he is in this book. So, you know, who knows? I'm, I you know, I don't want to pass judgment on him. You know what I mean? I try really hard not to. You know, maybe there's reasons. There's reasons for everything that people do. You know, and I'm I'm not perfect. Nobody is. We all fuck shit up. We all make Decisions and choices, and say things that we wish we wouldn't have said. You know, and I could bury the the hatchet with Bret Hart tomorrow. It doesn't matter to me. I, it doesn't. It doesn't affect my life. But it, when I hear stuff like that, it's that I that is so totally false. That's just so one-sided and self-serving. And you know, Brett, and the way you read that to me, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that I've got a certain perspective of, of Brett right now. But you know, it's just constantly putting himself over at the expense of everybody else around him he's the only one that's really he really did does believe he's the best that ever was the best that ever is and the best that ever will be the shit it went to his fucking head well along me, with the canadian hero
0: nonsense there's gonna be a lot of people debating this this week well here's something not so epic you didn't correct me earlier when i called bret hart and rick flair the main event because it should have been Instead, it's Lex Luger and Randy Savage. They go seven minutes and seven seconds. Meltzer would say match had no heat at all. Liz's offense was actually better than that of half the guys in the promotion. Uh, he gives it a quarter star. Of course, you know, what's coming towards the end. You've got, uh, Hall and Hogan come down before you know it. The entire NWO is down there. Sting comes down from the ceiling to make the save. And the show ends with Luger racking Nash and sting having Hogan in the scorpion, so it's a cool way to go off the air, but this does not feel nearly as important as the match we saw before.
1: No, it, it doesn't feel that way. Does it? And arguably it wasn't as important, but then again, arguably I could defend this by saying from a storytelling point of view and an episodic point of view, more specifically. Um, and the way we wanted to leave the crowd and the reaction we wanted at the very end, because to me, that was one of the most important things. It wasn't. Oh, I could talk for hours about this and probably not make any sense to some people, but you need a match. You, need, you we talked about, you know, how great the first couple matches were right with with the Luchadors and Jericho and, and Rey Mysterio and Benoit and so forth. There's a lot of great matches there, but the audience doesn't always react to great matches. They enjoy them, but they don't get as emotionally invested sometimes in them. They appreciate them, but they don't overreact to them. Whereas in a, in a match that's kind of, I'll call it a storytelling match, (laughs) which this clearly was, you're not going to see the kind of dynamic action in the ring as, as you would in some of the other matches that we talked about er earlier that we put over but at the same time, you're going to get the reaction. The last thing that people are going to see is the, a great crowd reaction, and that's a goal. I don't care what it is. If you go to a movie and you know 75% of the movie kind of bland, but the last five minutes of it just knocks you out of your chair, you're going to run around telling everybody what a great movie it was. You forget the buildup. You forget some of the stuff that puts you to sleep. Some of it didn't really make any sense to you in the beginning of the movie, but at the end, it does. It all comes together. Now, I'm not saying that this this main event had that kind of backstory and that kind of, you know, uh, design and architecture in it, but it did have a finish that we knew would get the crowd hot based on the ongoing story that was taking place at the time. So, I'll take the criticism, and I'll I'll not only take it, I'll agree with it. Um, that, you know, if I would have booked it now, I would I would have booked it differently, but. In that time, given the circumstances, given the direction, given the heat, given the revenue, giving all of the things that you talked about in the beginning of this, this episode about how successful we were doing, one of the reasons we were successful is because when we went off the show, we went off the show fucking hot, whether it was a nitro or pay-per-view, most of the time. We, 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 str- we, we worked really hard to try to achieve that. Sometimes we fell short. But that's why this match happened as the main event, not because it was the best match on the card. That's a very juvenile way sometimes of looking at things. We got to put the best match on the card. Well, that would have clearly been Chris Jericho and Rey Mysterio. Would that have been the main event?
0: I wasn't suggesting that it should.
1: No, I no 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 no. I'm not. I'm not pointing to you. I'm saying that in a general sense. Would one suggest if the best match on the card should be the main event? Then arguably, if you if you're going to go by that booking logic, and you actually are responsible for making those decisions on a week-to-week basis then that match should have been if that's what dave Meltzer believed that match should have been the the main event and f- fucking we would have died a miserable death
0: if hey, it would have been the hey, case my, my point on this one is though um i understand that you put what's box office in the main event i get that not necessarily quote-unquote work rate but hey who are people buying tickets to see and to me, Bret Hart and Ric Flair is a much bigger match than what has probably happened on 38 Nitros at this point, Lex Luger, Randy Savage. But, you know, it, it is still the main storyline because you've still got the NWO as the hot issue. Sting can get involved. The title's held up. I get it. It makes sense. But when I think about this show, I'll always think about Bret and Rick as the real main event.
1: Do you think that that's because deep down inside now then especially, that you, you you were just much more of a Ric Flair fan than you were of Randy Savage and.
0: No, I think I was more everything. of a Bret Hart fan because I had all you know, as far as I knew. this was before you got to know him. <laughs> well, no, I, I i was not. I was a huge fan of his stuff in 1997, and I think the idea that hey, they're they're putting him, you know, I was like, what the fuck are they doing with Starcade? But now, whoa, he's with Ric Flair. We haven't seen that since Brett beat him for the title in Saskatchewan or Saskatoon or whatever. So it's been a long time since they wrestled. There's been a real undercurrent of heat where they don't really get along in real life. And that is what att- attracted me as a fan. I just assume Luger and Randy Savage are going to go do a regular wrestling match, but where you could really involve me is when you say, okay, I know some of the rest of this is whatever, but man, these guys really don't like each other. And that's what that match had for me.
1: I, I absolutely agree with you, Conrad. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm telling you why I made the decision that I made then. Um, If I had to do it all over again, you know, absolutely. I I would have agreed with you. And I I was a believer then. you know, when you – we've talked about it so many times. You know, the the shit that I had going on with Ric Flair that, you know, is is horrible as I was in the ring as a performer – um, you know, my character was pretty solid. I had quite a bit of heat at the time and Rick made me look good in, in a way that nobody else possibly could have. Um, it worked okay. You know, because it was real heat. Some of the best interviews that Rick's ever done in my opinion um is when you take real life situations and turn the volume up a little bit on yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Because Rick gets so invested in it and you're absolutely right. The 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 storyline, the real heat that the audience was pretty well aware of at least a, a reasonable percentage of them, um, would have manifest in a, in a much hotter main event had we booked it that way. So I, am not going to argue with you. I, 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 support you.
0: Let's go ahead and uh, get your opinion. We covered sold out 97. Now we've covered sold out 98. No comparison. 98's a much better show. Would you agree? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, quite a bit. Well,
0: let's Better. keep the fun going. We're going to do something different next week. I haven't even told you this. I want to cover a show that happened when you weren't there. And we're going to take a, a page out of what happened when in Tony Schiavone's book. And we're going to do a watch along next week with an unbelievable show that has just as much happening in front of the camera as maybe it does behind the camera sold out 2000. Uh, let's just run through the matches right here. I, I think that uh, everybody remembers the main event. Most of all, I'll tell you what that is. Chris Benoit and Sid Vicious are having a singles match for the vacant WCW World Heavyweight title, and Arn Anderson is the special guest referee. Of course, famously, Chris Benoit is going to quit while he's the champion and then jump ship to the WWF the very next day.
1: Was I'm, there a poll? Was there anything on a poll?
0: Like, uh, was there
1: scissors on a poll? Well, here, here you go. I
0: think you're going to like this. Billy Kidman and Dean Malenko have a catch as catch can match, which I've never heard of vampiro is going to wrestle david flair and crowbar in a handicap match big Vito and johnny the bull are going to take on the harris brothers oklahoma that's right oklahoma is going to wrestle medusa in a singles match for the cruiserweight title that's a real thing brian knobs is going to have a fatal four-way match for the hardcore title with fit finley norman smiley and ming there's going to be a bunkhouse brawl match here with billy kidman and perry saturn Booker T is going to wrestle his brother, Stevie Ray in a singles match. Tank Abbott is going to have a match with Jerry Flynn. There'll be a last man standing match with buff Bagwell and diamond Dallas page. The wall is going to take on Billy Kidman in a caged heat match. That's Billy Kidman's second match on the show. And then for a hardcore match to decide who will be the commissioner of WCW Kevin Nash and Terry Funk. Motherfucker. You just made me,
1: or Vince. You just made me. You're this is this is Vince Russo booking. This is not long after Vince Russo showed up. Vince Russo showed up in September of '99, or October of '99, somewhere in there. And this is what January of 2000. That's or right. 2000? That's right. Okay, so Vince Russo had the book. He was he. he they were still in the honeymoon phase. Turner Broadcasting and Vince Russo. Vince Russo could do anything that he wanted to do. The genius that he is. The guy that created the Attitude Era. He created The Rock. He created Stone Cold Steve Austin. He ushered in the entire Attitude Era. And he got there. And this is the bucket of tripe that he put out on a pay-per-view. Now, I'm, this shit just made Sold Out 97 look like fucking work of art
0: well we'll find out next week I, I just loved i wanted to run through it because it was one oh, i can't wait I, after I, another I
1: i've been waiting to unload on, on russo now for a while i've, I've kind of laid off of him because you've given me enough dave Meltzer shit to work with but i cannot wait to run that piece of shit through a meat grinder this is gonna be fun oh my
0: gosh well don't watch it without us guys go back and watch it with us next week right here in 83 weeks it's a watch along for sold out 2000 he is at E Bischoff on twitter i am at hey hey it's conrad and we are out of time i can't wait for next week sold out 2000 gimmick overload uh apologies in advance to mr russo see you next week right here on 83 weeks with eric bischoff